Okay, Jesse, last week was a tragic Thanksgiving. What's the story this time around? Well, it is time for our second most requested case in all of Love Murder's history when Betty Broderick's husband of 16 years left her for younger woman Linda Colkenna, Betty was left confused and angry. As perceived injustices stacked up, Betty's rage turned incandescent and then fatal. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about broken hearts, little tarts, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and leave us a stellar review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, there are two things you can do. You can head to our website and check out our new merch, or you can go to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, as usual, we are just so very excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Micah P. and Alexandra P. Rachel G. and Phoenix R. And Lee S. Another amazing group of people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Patreon. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode today. Yeah. Yeah. And also thank you, Andy, so much for all of the hard work you have put in to redoing our website and coming up with some new stellar merch just in time for the holidays. I know. It's pretty cute. I'm very excited. I hope everyone else enjoys and we are open to any and all feedback, anything that you feel like we're missing or any ways we can make this experience better for all of you, the most important people, our listeners, would be ideal for us to know. So please feel free to shoot us a DM or an email if there's anything that you would like. Yes, I have a question, Andy. Our old system of doing merch was really backward, and now we have Shopify, so it's a lot easier. But as far as Christmas coming up, when do people need to get orders in, do you think? That's a great question. A, Shopify streamlines everything a lot easier for you. So I think if you've ordered merch from us in the past, we were using a website called Squarespace, which is an amazing website builder, but it's not so great with e-commerce fulfillment. Whereas with Shopify, when you check out, you will get email notifications letting you know when your product has shipped, what the tracking is, and so forth. However, all of these items are printed on demand. It's a more sustainable approach that we're going to be taking moving forward. So you should please plan for two weeks from your order date to receive your product. So it'll take about a week to produce it and then a week to ship it to you. So just make sure you get all of your orders. And if you do want something for the holidays, depending on what holiday you celebrate, but if you're celebrating towards the end of December, try to get your orders in around this week, next week, or at the latest, the week after. And you will have the opportunity to pick your shipping speed on Shopify now as well, if you ended up coming to the website a little late. Great. Okay. Thank you. That's such important information. So. Today, we are covering our second most requested case. I think our number one is still the Ken and Barbie killers. Yes. 
Canada's pride. I say that sarcastically. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Canada. Yep. This is one that I have been sitting on for a very, very long time. And I think I'm going to, I kind of explain it in my introduction. It's less of the kind of visual introduction that I usually do and more just kind of an explanation of how we got here and why we're covering it right now. So I think I should probably just launch right into it. Let's do it. Well, today's episode is a case that true crime fans will know very well. It is, like I just said, our second most requested case. We started this podcast in 2020, Andy. We did. And that was the same year that Dirty John season two, Betty Broderick, came out. So obviously, at that point, it generated huge buzz. And for that reason, I did not consider the case at all for definitely at least our first couple years. And in fact, since then, it's been so widely covered that I considered never covering it. Obviously, I try to give you guys lesser known cases when I can, but I have had two books about the case just sitting on my bookshelf. <laughs> One of them you said was so long, right? It was so long. I, t- I brought it downstairs and I think I was like, is that a textbook? My favorite and the definitive Betty Broderick book which so many podcasts, and I believe the show also used as reference, is called Until the Twelfth of Never by Bella Stumbo. And it is 795 pages. Wow. It is exhaustive. I mean, Bella Stumbo is 100% the authority on all things Betty Broderick. I also had another one that was on Audible, because shockingly, Until the Twelfth of Never is not on Audible, called Hell Hath No Fury by Brenna Taubman, which is also a good book. It's just at 214 pages, you're getting more of a condensed version of the case, which is also fantastic if you do not have the time for an 800-page tome. It's the perfect place to be. It's great. There's an Andy book and a Jesse book. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. I have been looking at them for a while, and then every couple weeks we get a request for this case. So I just, I thought it was time. I, again, thought we might be together. We're not yet, but we will be very shortly. Yes, sadly, we are not yet together. So I thought maybe this was the time to do it. But I also have some other cases coming up into Patreon that we get to do together. So I'm excited about that. Digging into the case, because I never watched the show either, because I was pretty committed to working on the cases at the time and keeping my head in the headspace of starting our podcast all together back then. And so finally watching the show, reading the books, getting into this, I found that it is in many ways the archetypical love murder case. It is probably the most perfect as far as definition of what we set out to do type of case. In an early description, which might still be the description on Apple Podcasts, I don't know, we said that this show was about seemingly normal people driven to passion and rage by love. Yeah. Or the lack thereof. And I think that there has been no subject more passionately rage-filled than Betty Broderick. Yeah. If you don't know the story yet, it starts off as something like a tale as old as time, except for not Beauty and the Beast, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) A wife helps husband reach the heights of financial success with her own sacrifice and struggle while she's keeping it down at home and raising the kids, only to be cast out many, many years down the road when the husband's head is turned by a younger model. Ugh. Yeah, we've heard this story before. We'll hear it again, unfortunately. 
And everyone in this story is utterly transformed by love at different stages. The husband, Dan Broderick, falls in love with someone new, but also with the idea of a fresh start, with laughter and possibility and easy smiles. None of those things he's having at home at the moment. He has struggles with passion versus duty, and he ultimately makes some catastrophically cruel decisions. The young woman, Linda, also behaves out of character after falling in love with someone she meets. And Betty, oof, Betty, okay. So her psyche collapses after years of infidelity, gaslighting, legal injustices, and corruption, or at least her perceived legal injustices and corruption, and psychological torment. To the horror of her loved ones, Betty's torment transforms her from the perfect suburban mother and wife to a grotesque monster obsessed with her former life and those responsible, she believes, for her unhappiness. Betty becomes La Jolla's very own Medea, vengeful and wrathful in her exile. When Betty's actions propel her from victim of the situation to perpetrator, she would end up finding support the world over. To this day, people are fascinated with this case because of the nuances. What do we owe the person we marry? Is there a timeline for getting over grief and betrayal? And haven't we all, at least once in our life, felt the prickly, fiery anger of betrayal, of hurt that could consume us if we let it? At the end of the day, regardless of intelligence, beauty, advanced degrees, or even incredible wealth, the people involved in this story are just that. They're just people. And we as humans have an incredible capacity for love, but also for cruelty. My main sources today are Bella Stumbo's Edgar Award-winning tome, Until the Twelfth of Never, and Brenna Taubman's Hell Hath No Fury. There's also a longer form podcast that came out in 2020 called It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders, if you're looking for more details on the case. But I'm guessing that this episode is going to run so long that we will have an equal amount of running time (laughs) to their entire series (laughs) by the time we get through with this, Andy. So you guys should all (laughs) buckle up because it's going to be a long episode. (laughs) Oh, and one quick trigger warning. Of course, we will have our usual Uh, violent situations, very salty language in this episode. I'll do my best to keep it to a low, but even I, and you guys know, I am, I have pretty raunchy language. My eyes watered a little bit reading some of the stuff in this episode. And sadly, we will be talking about miscarriage and baby loss at some point. So we are going to embark upon a journey now, a rags to riches, two scrappy kids in love tale that goes horribly awry. Betty Bisheglia and Dan Broderick met cute at Notre Dame University during a big USC, which is University of Southern California, Notre Dame football game weekend. It was 1965, and the party was raging. Jerry Lee Lewis of, oh goodness gracious, Great Balls of Fire fame, was even at this party. I'm not sure if he was rocking the party like he was playing it or if he was just a guest, but apparently... The party that they met at was really wild, really loud, and it was quite exciting for 17-year-old Betty because she was raised as a Catholic schoolgirl. She hadn't been in an environment like this really her whole life. She was a freshman at the time at a Catholic women's college, and she was there with a girlfriend and a chaperone. 
Oh my gosh. But though she was young and she had definitely never been into a real party setting, 510 Betty was gorgeous. She was poised. And she did seem probably a little bit more sophisticated than your average sheltered 17-year-old girl. So she was from Eastchester, which I think is only about 45 minutes outside of the city. So she was in New York City quite a bit. She actually did some modeling in her young days as well. So she was able to carry herself with the air of somebody much more sophisticated than she actually was. She was bemused and then flattered when a slender, dark-haired, bespectacled Dan Broderick approached her. He was definitely nerdy. He's a real cutie pie. But he was really confident. He was extremely intelligent and quite quick and witty. Dan was a senior at Notre Dame, and he wrote his name on a napkin for Betty with a pen that he had borrowed from her. He wrote Daniel T. Broderick III, M.D., and then in parentheses, A. She asked him, of course, what the A stood for. And he said almost as Dan had just been accepted to medical school at Cornell University. Yeah, it's a big almost. That's a big almost, buddy. It's a big hill you got to get over. (laughs) They like weed people out like it's their job. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big almost. I like, though, how he's trying to like lead right with where he's going. He is not bearing the lead here. He's like, look at me. I know you're a 10. I know maybe just looks wise. I'm not quite there yet, even though he is a good looking guy. But I'm going to be a doctor lady. Yeah, almost. Almost. Dan was allegedly so blown away by young Betty that he told a classmate that very night that he had just met his future wife. Wow. Yes. Indeed, Betty would claim that he spent the next three years basically proposing to her every day. To Dan, Betty seemed like the perfect wife, or at least perfect wife material, because that's what she had been raised to be. Bella Stumbo wrote, she was programmed from birth to be a wife, not only by her parents and the parochial girls' schools that she attended, but by her peers too. You were what I've often wanted to be, a college classmate once wrote to her in 1966. You present the image of a model woman, and more so, the perfect wife. The friend added that she was almost envious of the man that would get to marry Betty. Wow. Dan and Betty had a lot in common. They were both smart, ambitious, and funny. They both came from large Catholic families. Dan was the eldest son of nine kids. Unbelievable. Yep. And Betty, so he was definitely Irish Catholic. And Betty's family was Irish Catholic on her mom's side and Italian Catholic or Roman Catholic on her dad's side. And she was the third of six children. Okay. Wow. So both huge families. Both huge families. So when they talked about what life would look like when they were together, there was an expectation that Betty would be a wife and they would have a whole passel of children. The two dated long distance with Betty at school in New York City getting a teaching degree and Dan upstate at Cornell getting his medical degree. Betty did eventually agree, finally, after three years to get married as long as it came after she got her degree, which is very smart. Yeah. So she ended up graduating, I believe, a semester early, and the two were married on April 12th, 1969. And one of their big songs that they love together 
was until the 12th of never is basically like I'll keep loving you until the 12th of never being like a date that will never come, obviously, but also because they got married on April 12th. Cute. 1969. 1969. Again, like last week's episode, this is not a couple that was going to Woodstock that year. No. Very different set of people. So here's an interesting fact that I discovered reading Bella Stumbo's book that I had not actually heard in any other coverage of the Betty Broderick case, was that she told Bella Stumbo that being a good Catholic girl, she was a virgin until she got married, and that apparently... I don't know if this was routine or whatever, but she made it sound like it was, which was that you would go to your first gynecological appointment right before you got married. Okay. To just check everything out, I guess, make sure you're ready for sex because you know they weren't using contraception. So I don't really know. Like, it was just to make sure everything's okay. And she did go to this before she got married. And she found out at this exam that she was somewhat of a medical rarity. Insofar as Betty has, has still to this day probably, two uteruses, two cervixes, and at the time she had two vaginas. What? <laughs> yeah, um, according to the book that I read, the doctor performed a, quote, simple office operation to correct the dual vaginas, but all the other bits remained in duplicate. This is something that occurs in about 0.3% of all women. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So does that cause any complications with like... It can. Okay. I would imagine. Yes. And it's very funny because I literally, probably a week ago, read about a woman in Alabama who got pregnant with essentially twins because she had this condition and both uteruses. But different times. It looked like somehow she had managed to ovulate at the same time. In both uteruses, so those kids are, both have the same due date. But there is um, also a Grey's Anatomy episode where a woman and her boyfriend get into a fight and she ends up sleeping with somebody else when they're broken up and gets pregnant in one uterus. And then she gets back together with her boyfriend and gets pregnant with his baby in the other uterus. And it like comes up because they're like one baby is six weeks older than the other baby. And he's like, we weren't even together then. So that happened in Grey's Anatomy. And I was aware of that. And then I heard this case. And now I'm hearing this. So there are complications. So what they told Betty was that she had a high probability of getting pregnant, even if she used contraception, because I guess there's just more at bats going on there. Yeah. However, it can be a dangerous situation and I'm not sure entirely why I'm not going to speak to medical information that I don't know as far as managing to carry the baby to full term or babies as it may be in some cases. So she knew pretty early on that it was going to be very easy to get pregnant, but it might not be easy to carry that baby to term. Yeah. And then I would imagine that labor would be complicated as well if you have two cervixes. I think that you have to perform cesarean sections. Yeah. Because how would it even pick where to come out? That's as far as I recall from Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> so the doctor was both right and wrong. Betty did get pregnant very easily. In fact, she and Dan would end up bringing home a very valuable trinket, a little souvenir from their honeymoon. That's how fast she got pregnant. 
But at least for her first couple pregnancies, she had absolutely no problem carrying the babies to term. So their first daughter, Kim, was born on January 24th, 1970. Betty learned how fertile she was on that honeymoon, but she also was faced with something else. She learned the new reality of her situation of being a wife in a traditional marriage like this was. They had stayed at this beautiful house that was a private house in the Caribbean. And immediately Dan had dismissed the cooking and cleaning staff that were there to wait on them because it was their honeymoon. Okay. He told her initially that he didn't want people around because he wanted privacy because they'd been dating for three years and hadn't had sex. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which I can understand. But he then expected Betty to do everything. Yeah. Cook for him, clean for him, make the bed. He wasn't doing any of that. She said he was brought books so he could be on vacation. Well, he expected her to keep house on their honeymoon. No. She said that it was a very stark difference between how he treated her when he was courting her, when she was a princess, when she had her own independent funds from her family or from modeling, and she had control of her own life. And then all of a sudden they get married and he's telling her what to do. They're combining finances. On the honeymoon is pretty, that's like a rude awakening too. Like your honeymoon should be the two of you in bed the whole time being blissful. Like not, especially if you have help. Like you have people there who can like assist you to even just you could just be like stay in that wing stay downstairs like leave the bedroom alone or something but nope they were gone oh so she realized now what her role was going to be and the honeymoon also did not seem to be a hit for dan at least he would finally say so many many years later he would later tell a close friend that he felt like on that trip he had made a huge mistake as well oh really He felt like he had made a dumb, raised Catholic mistake with Betty. Ironically, both Betty and Dan would say that their first indications that maybe they weren't going to be perfectly matched was that the other one was too much like their same-sex parent. (laughs) So Dan thought that she was behaving too much like her mother, and she thought he was behaving too much like his father. Okay. And they had had different experiences. So in Betty's family, it sounds like her mother was a little dramatic, a little histrionic, and she would just straight up refuse things or she would claim to be sensitive about things. So she's like, driving stresses me out, so I don't drive. So that means that their father had to take them to school or to extracurriculars or do the grocery shopping because she couldn't even take the car to the grocery store. And so as a result, or she'd get stressed out or tired easily and she'd have to lay down or she was sick, it seemed like Betty's father was way more in service to his wife and to his children and performed a lot of those domestic duties to help out. And as a result, Betty had so much respect for her dad and so much love for him. And Dan had absolutely the opposite. I mean, he had what you would think of in the 40s and 50s the straight up madmen where I go out, I make the money. If I want to go drinking all night, I go drinking all night. I don't care that we have nine children at home. I'm providing for you. And I think he did very well for himself. I think Dan's father had money. I mean, with nine kids? You'd hope so. <laughs> and I think that most of the brothers all went to Notre Dame too, which is not cheap. Well, it was a lot cheaper back then. <laughs> yes. So he had a different version of how the split in a relationship is supposed to be. 
it, he didn't have a particularly warm relationship with his father because he wasn't involved with them emotionally or physically. But I think that that was his example. That was her example. Now he's realizing, oh my gosh, she's really overly dramatic in his opinion. She requires a lot of attention, a lot of this, that, the other. She doesn't want to do stuff like her mom. She's a lot more like her mom. The the th same things that she complained about her mom. Now she's acting like that and she's going, he complains about his dad being useless and controlling and cold. And now he's being like that. So they both had this foundation of not seeing eye to eye. The one place where Dan and Betty really did come together and they seemed to shine together was through both working their tails off so that they could get to a more comfortable financial future together. By summer of 1971, the couple had had their second child, a girl named Lee, and both had plenty of odd jobs. While Dan was finishing med school and then doing his residency program in Philadelphia, he drove cabs, he worked in a blood lab, while Betty did a whole bunch of stuff. She taught for a little while before having kids, and then she wasn't able to have a full-time job, obviously, so she would hostess at restaurants at night when Dan was able to be home with the babies. She would sell Avon and Tupperware door to door. They were really doing everything they could to make this work. Dan surprised Betty when he told her that he could make more money as a malpractice attorney than a doctor. At the time, this was a huge new-ish place where you could really find your way in law and make a whole ton of money. And given that he had an MD, if he went back and got his law degree, then he would be one of the very few lawyers who was totally qualified to work on these cases. Wow. Okay. So he's like, okay, you know how you just supported me all throughout medical school and my residency and it was really exhausting and we didn't make a lot of money? Well, I'm going to go back to law school, which will also be exhausting and we won't make any money <laughs> for a while. But he said the payoff is going to be huge, especially because he did get into Harvard Law. So he's like, look, it's the, the rainbow's there. The pot of gold is at the end of it. We just have to get through a few more years. She talked about how they had crappy apartments and she would have to take the babies with like the dirty laundry, which included cloth diapers because they had kids, so just dirty diapers on the bus. Yeah. When they moved to Boston, Cambridge area, she didn't know anyone in New York. She had had, and even Philadelphia is close enough that she had a circle of friends and family. She doesn't know anyone there. She's lonely. At some point, they had to go on food stamps because they weren't bringing in any money in Massachusetts. So this was a, a very lonely time. And in 1973, she went into labor prematurely at seven months when she was pregnant with her third child. Oh, no. And because she was so early, he had been on some sort of school skiing trip. Stop. And she had to call the police to take her to the hospital because she didn't know what to do and she didn't have any friends or anyone to call. And like the kids too. And she had the babies. So he did make it home in time because they ended up being able to stop the labor for four days. But the baby was born four days later. And this is where the trigger warning comes in. Unfortunately... The little baby boy did not survive. Oh. Yeah. He only lived for a matter of days and he passed away, which was, of course, devastating. And I believe that Dan wasn't present at the hospital when the baby passed for whatever reason, because it comes up later on when she's very upset with him. All in all, Betty would end up being pregnant nine times in 10 years. She would have four children who survived, of course, the little boy who passed. 
she would have two miscarriages and she would also have two abortions. Okay. That is a lot of grief and hormonal ups and downs, stress. Obviously, they fought about the abortions. Dan didn't even want to use contraception. So you can imagine that he'd be against abortion as a Catholic. I was going to say is he doesn't want to use any form of contraception like condoms or allow her to be on birth control because of his Catholicism. It sounds like that was the case. But also, I guess she had talked to that doctor about how some forms of contraception wouldn't work for them somehow. They did try to use a diaphragm at one point, but he was disgusted in it, she said. But I don't know. A lot of this is coming from Betty. So she could be just blaming him for what occurred. But yeah, at the time that the pregnancies that she ended up aborting happened, they were in a really bad place, either financially or emotionally. Regardless, could you imagine being pregnant nine times in 10 years, you said? No, I absolutely cannot. That is a hormonal roller coaster. Literally, like you're just constantly on and off all of the insane waves that happen when your hormones and your estrogen is all out of whack. That's so, so, so much emotionally while also caring for the four kids that she did have. Yes, and alone. I mean, if you don't have friends in the area, you will be isolated because this is not a time where you could meet people on the internet, where you could FaceTime your best friend if they are far away. You could maybe talk on the phone, but it was a very different time period. And this was very hard for Betty, but she would later say that they were very aligned. At least her and Dan were aligned about where they were going, and they knew that it was going to be worth it someday. After graduating from Harvard, Dan did a clerkship in Los Angeles and was eventually wooed to join a law firm in San Diego, California. Within two years, Dan was earning promotions and raises. They were eventually able to purchase a beautiful home in La Jolla, which is a very beautiful and very expensive and ritzy part of San Diego. Dan was just a rock star. So everyone said that he hit the ground running, that he worked harder than anyone else in any firm that he ever worked at. He worked for his own firm eventually. He was the kind of guy who made all of the rest of the lawyers look like loafers, as one of one of his colleagues said. He and this guy said he would be billing 2,500 hours annually while everyone else was like maybe getting 1,800 if they were working their asses off. Betty was very busy herself. She was getting involved with local society. She was volunteering for various charities. She was having two more children because she had two sons, Danny Jr. in 1976 and Rhett in 1979. And those children were born in California. And Betty also pretty much worked until Dan was pulling in a million dollars a year. So she will be later characterized as somebody who was greedy, somebody who wanted to be a trophy wife, who didn't want to work, who wanted to just spend his money. But the truth was that Betty worked very, very hard for many years in this marriage. She, even when they lived in California, would host us at a steakhouse at night when Dan came home from work so that they could make extra money before he was making a ton and would literally bring free food home from the steakhouse. She also had like a de facto daycare where she took care of other children in her home. Whatever she could do. Whatever she could do while having four kids to make a little extra money to help the family out. Betty was very well-liked. She was known for her quick wit and her boundless energy. She was always quick to throw somebody a birthday party. She would 
be there if somebody had a problem. She loved to be a friendly ear, obviously babysitting. Soon enough, Dan was raking in the cash and Betty got a taste for the more materialistic pleasures in her life. The things that she and he had been working towards, which is really nice dinners out at restaurants that they could afford anything on the menu, $1,000 spending sprees, nice clothes, maybe even a family vacation. Betty, again, can be characterized as materialistic or even money obsessed, but I do think that at least at this stage in her life, and maybe even later, she was using it to fill a hole. Dan was tremendously busy at work. I mean, we just talked about his billable hours and how he was outworking everybody. That means that she's not really seeing him. And when you work that hard and when you have probably the family example that Dan had, he'd also finish work and blow off steam with his colleagues. They win a case, they get a good settlement, like, let's go to the local bar and have some drinks and then come home whenever I come home. Yeah. So Betty kept expecting at some point that he was going to start seeing her, wooing her, taking time for her and the kids again, because she's like, well, we've made it. We worked so hard so that you could be present. And now he's still never home. So in between their last two children's births, she was getting so frustrated and lonely and sad that she had begun to actually threaten divorce, saying that maybe I'll just take the kids and go back to New York where I have family and friends because I thought it was going to be better by now and it's still not. Instead, they ended up going to Marriage Encounter, which you may remember from our fourth episode during the Candy Montgomery episode. Remember they went to the counseling, like marriage encounter session to kind of get their marriage back on track? Mm -hmm. Dan and Betty also did this. During the retreat, the couple wrote letters to one another that are published in Bella Stembo's book. Dan acknowledged that he, quote, tell myself that I've got to earn a decent living, establish myself as a lawyer, acquire certain possessions before I can indulge in the luxury of being a thoughtful, attentive person. He went on to say that Given time, he believed he could be a good husband and dad. He just, he was aware he wasn't being it at the time. He wrote, I want to be a responsive, sensitive husband and father. I want to be the type of person who will be genuinely missed when he dies. But I need time. In turn, Betty wrote, Darling Dan, the opposite of love is indifference. We've never hated each other, but we have, or I feel you have, been guilty of the opposite of love. And it really hurts. I love you, and I hope we can accommodate each other better. And one of the big hurdles for Betty was that he wasn't very expressive in what he was thinking and feeling. And he would just tell her, well, I just don't need to share things the way you need to share things, to unburden yourself with feelings. I think it was a personality type. He's like, I just want to know what the problem is and fix it. And she's like, well, tell me what you're feeling. And he's like, I'm feeling annoyed by this conversation. So let's just figure out what you need me to do to be better. And that's not what she wanted. She wanted to know what his soul was feeling. Once again, just not compatible in the way that they handle situations. Exactly. And I think a large part of this was not living together, not being physically intimate, being long distance for the three years of their relationship. So they were only spending short amounts of time together. All of this means that I don't think that they had ever had to communicate on any deeper level at any point. Also, in that type of relationship, you're not running into problems because you're not up in each other's hair and spaces. 
she also talked about the difference between her wants and needs, some things that he would look at as what was a want to her, and she was explaining why it was a need. Maybe something you can relate to better is that we need a sofa, nothing else for our house. There's lots we want, but for now we need a sofa so you and I can be physically close in the evenings and share the day's events and feelings so we go to bed in love. Not what we have now. By the time we go to bed, I'm so full of capital letters resentment for the lack of closeness and communication during the evening. How can I make love to that? She said, I love you and I want to share all I am with you, but I also need to be loved by you and feel that I know everything there is to know about you like no one else on earth ever has or ever will. Every day I live with you, I want to get a little bit closer to that goal, striving toward the impossible dream to give my life meaning and worth. I don't feel anything like that now. The number one thing I loved about you in the beginning was how much you capital letters loved me and you showed it. You know all the other reasons. In fact, I love everything about you now as I did then, except that you don't show your love for me anymore. Yeah. It's interesting how everyone has like a certain capacity of things that they're able to do and that love fills up some of that sometimes for people. For him, it was like he has a certain amount of himself that he can offer to like the world that he exists in. And it seems like 99% of it is actually dedicated towards his success and his achievements professionally and he's unable like he feels like he's like physically and mentally unable to be a good father or good husband while doing that whereas I think for a lot of other people who understand the importance of love it's like that can coexist with your goals and ambitions in life well he knows that that's the way it should be because he even says in a different part of that same letter if I died tomorrow, I would die unfulfilled because no one would really miss me because no one really got to know me. Our kids didn't grow up with me being present. They wouldn't have all these amazing memories of me because I've been working so hard for all of their existence. And he was aware of that, but it also seemed like at the end of the marriage encounter, he didn't see that really changing anytime soon. Yeah, but that's like a choice that every person gets to make for themselves. Yeah. And I think that... Betty was looking at him to give her life meaning. She basically says as much. The impossible dream of giving my life meaning. She didn't feel like her life was worth anything unless her husband was madly, unbelievably in love with her and told her every single detail of his day and ran home to talk to her and bear his soul. And do you think that that was always the case for her? Do you think that that changed when she exclusively became like a stay-at-home wife? I think for many people, I feel lucky in my relationship, <laughs> probably because I was very upfront <laughs> with Nathaniel about my needs. And you guys are just compatible though. It seems like their worlds aren't compatible. I just think that she was being pursued. I think he was pursuing her. And for most people, the honeymoon phase and the courting phase is very different than being in a marriage. I mean, even for Nathaniel and I, who are, I feel very lucky that he really does set aside so much time to be a couple with me and to prioritize that part of our relationship. Even with us, we can get caught up and realize we haven't really talked about anything other than the kids or work in days, if not weeks. So I think that she was always chasing that feeling of being desired because she was once the girl he couldn't get enough of, the one that he said he wanted to marry as soon as he met her, this beautiful, lith idea of the perfect wife. 
But then as his money rose and his star rose and he's out there getting accolades in the world, he was all of a sudden, like she was lucky to have him. And she wanted him to feel lucky and appreciative that he had her still. And he just kind of stopped seeing her. They're very, very incompatible too about their communication styles. Yes. So she's not adequately communicating this to him at all and vice versa. Even when you read these letters, you can see how each of these personalities can take them in totally different ways. (laughs) Dan did eventually start his own practice and they accrued tremendous wealth and status, but Betty never really got over that feeling of not being seen or appreciated. On the surface for a little while, at least a little while longer, they sure looked good. Another attorney's wife said they were everything we all wanted to be. They looked about as good as it gets. And looked is the key word because behind closed doors, the couple were fighting bitterly, constantly. They both felt overworked and underappreciated in their various realms. He's saying, I'm fucking killing myself at the office and I come home and all you do is yell at me. And she's like, are you kidding me? At least you get accolades. At least you get to wear nice suits to the office. I'm like dying here. Yeah. Trying to take care of all the kids and do everything that you want me to do. And you don't care. You don't look at that as I'm smart and I'm talented. So they still were not seeing eye to eye. And so Betty started doing other things to get his attention. She would just go out and charge a ridiculous amount on their credit card so that he'd get the bill at his office and he'd need to call her in the middle of the day and say, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, good. You called me during the middle of the day. That doesn't usually happen. So they started developing a very dangerous communication style where Betty is learning that maybe to get Dan's attention, she needs to act out. And when she does, he gives it to her. It's negative, but he gives it to her. And that's better than nothing. Eventually, though, this is only going to get worse and worse and worse. And she started getting jealous of anyone who had Dan's attention, whether it was his clients or his colleagues or the guys that he went out drinking with, to the point where she stopped being the fun, likable Betty that everybody liked at these legal mixers. And she started being a real buzzkill. She started getting on him about his drinking. There was some Mexican birthday party they all went to. And everyone said she was just really dour and horrible to be around. Her whole personality was changing at this point. And one of Dan's friends said, essentially, in the Bella Stumbo book, that he believed that Betty was driven by jealousy and that she thought she was the center of the universe. Or at least she thought she deserved to be the center of her husband's universe. He went on to say, this is Dan's friend, Brian Monahan. I think she just never felt loved either by her parents or by Dan. She was like a child like that, he thought. And kids need a dependable link of love. But Betty just didn't have that, not with her family or with Dan either. She just had her social structure to support her. And when that eroded, she just fell apart. If you had asked Dan, this marriage was deeply troubled and it had been for a very long time, obviously. But Betty would later tell you that she and Dan and her children were just perfect. They had the perfect life. They were happy. They were in love until one person stepped in and ruined it all. And that person was 21-year-old pool secretary named Linda Colkenna. What's a pool secretary? So pool secretary is essentially like a secretary for the whole office. Got it. Okay. So Dan at this point had his own practice and he had an office like in a high rise type building. So that's like the receptionist who 
works the phones for the whole building and doesn't specifically work for one office. Yeah, like pool tips. Exactly. 21 is so young, huh? She's young. He must have been 37 at the time that he met Linda when she was 21. So he's 37. He has his own practice. She's 21 and she's working as a lowly pool secretary. From my understanding, it was not as well paid as being like a dedicated secretary in a specific office. Yeah. Even though it should be paid more because you're handling more shit. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Linda was the youngest of four children born to Dutch immigrants who came to the United States and settled in Salt Lake City, Utah. Like the Brodericks, Linda had also been raised Catholic. And she was from a very traditional home. You work hard to put food on the table and raise a family, and that's everybody's goal. The idea of a career was an alien concept, Linda's sister Maggie would later say. She would say, quote, Our expectation was to grow up and have children. You work to work, not have a career. It seemed like even the men worked to just put food on the table rather than have this lofty idea of what their career would be or taking satisfaction from anything other than being a good person and raising a decent family. Well, Linda was left devastated after her mother's death when she was only 11 years old to breast cancer. Mm -hmm. It was very early to lose a mother. As a result, the remaining family was very tight, obviously. He did remarry another widow, but Linda was always very protective of her relationship with her father and wanted to make him proud because she only had one surviving biological parent. She worked for a time as a Delta flight attendant, and this is back in the days where they were like hotsy-totsy after she graduated high school, but she was eventually fired due to some off-duty shenanigans. Oh, wow. So this comes up later. We're going to get into court proceedings later on, much later in the book, and somehow this ends up getting dug up. I don't think it's anything that should besmirch Linda's character because it's kind of funny to me. She was off-duty, and she and a couple other flight attendants apparently took an off-duty flight going somewhere to party, and they were all drinking. And she was using foul language and maybe, just maybe, might have taken a guy into the restroom with her. On the airplane? On the airplane. She's like 19 years old or something. And the, like, head (laughs) stewardess at the time, that's what they called them, on the flight was like, we know that you're flight attendants and that's how you got this free trip or whatever. And this is not becoming a lady flight attendant. So get it together. And apparently Linda gave her a fake name. Oh my God. Because she's like, I'm going to write you up. And she gave her a fake name. Later on, Linda would say in her own defense that she was just getting sick in the restroom and the guy came to like check on her and that they weren't even alone in there. That's what she said. Yeah. Sure. In any case, she got fired. I mean, I think that's, you know, not a great look for your professional life to do that in what is essentially your workplace. It's uh, your office, technically. (laughs) It's your office. It's not a great look. Even if you're off duty, it's like, uh, it's not so outlandish. No, it's not dangerous. That a 19 year old would do this. Yeah, it's not mean spirited. (laughs) It's just being a bonehead 19 year old, to be honest. And that's why the drinking legal age is 21 now. (laughs) So after that, she ended up getting a job at an Atlanta law firm. She started dating somebody. That person was moving to San Diego for work. She followed that boyfriend there. The relationship did not work out, but she got a job working as a pool secretary for Dan Broderick's building, which is where she met the 37-year-old when she was 21. Wow. Okay. Yes. 
San Diego looked good on Linda. She was tall, tan, lithe, and blonde. In fact, many people remarked that she looked just like Betty had 15 years earlier. Oh, God. That, like, made my body hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So that did not escape Dan Broderick, apparently. Betty would later say that she discovered Linda's existence, just that Linda was a person that she needed to worry about, when she overheard Dan in early 1983 remark to a friend at a party, isn't she so beautiful? Oh, my God. That has to hurt so bad. Yeah. And Betty would later say that this is something that could be innocuous if it was coming from any other man. But she said that Dan was not a womanizer. He wasn't one of those lecherous guys who, even though he's married, is like, wow, look at that. That was just not his type. He's not emotive or creepy like that. And so when she heard him say that, and especially thinking about how all she wants is him to see her and give her compliments, it's like her whole world stopped. Yeah, I would imagine. It just immediately set off these huge red flag ringing bells in her head. So after they were home later that night, she casually, I'm sure it wasn't as casual as she thought it was, asked him, oh, I overheard you talking to somebody and you said something about somebody being beautiful. What are you talking about? And he said, I don't know. There's a a new girl in reception, the new office girl. It's like nothing. I don't even know her name. I think it starts with an L or something. Well, Betty did not forget this. She was the modern day Instagram detective. <laughs> yes, if she had had Instagram, she would be like, after he's in bed, she's in the tag, dark. Like, tag, tag photos. When she later saw Linda at some sort of work or social function, she could not believe that this was who Dan thought was beautiful. So this is what she said to author... Bella Stumbo about this whole situation and the first time that she saw Linda. She said, quote, I was shocked that this was the girl he thought was so beautiful. She was just another skinny little bimbo with a gap between her front teeth. She had all this hair all poofed up like Brigitte Bardot, bobby pins and the whole bit. I was, to say the least, underwhelmed. It never even occurred her to speak to Kolkenna. Why should I lower myself, she asked. She was obviously just another 19-year-old airhead looking for a rich husband. She couldn't hold a handle to me. I was prettier. I was smarter. I was classier. Never occurred to me that Dan would be stupid enough to throw his family away for this office girl. It was just too much of a cliche to believe. I mean, the ironic thing about what she's saying is that Linda looked a lot like her. Of course. It's a complete defense mechanism. It is. And objectively, Linda Kolkenna was very beautiful. It's just she's really projecting anger about this. And she continues to, for years, even after she knows much better, refer to Linda as a 19-year-old girl who didn't even have a high school diploma, who couldn't even type, that somehow caught his eye when that wasn't true. She had graduated from high school and she was 21 years old when she met Dan. And she ends up getting trained as a paralegal. It's just wishful thinking. For Betty. She's like casting this character in her head. She doesn't see Linda as a person. She sees her as a one-dimensional threat. Homewrecker. Yep. And that's just another example of not blaming the person who's actually married. Exactly. Like she should be mad at Dan, not at Linda. It's just going to get worse, though. She would later say that a chill came over her marriage when Linda 
showed up on the scene. Now, Dan would later say, and I would agree with Dan in this respect, that this marriage had been troubled for a very long time. Absolutely. But now there's a physical manifestation of the problem. It's not emotional. It's not communicative. There's a physical manifestation of the problem in the marriage. And all of the anger and blame is going to be cast on her. Yes, absolutely. She's rewriting history that everything was great and perfect and loving and that she supported him without question or complaint for all of those years. And then all of a sudden, this harpy. She uses the C word. She uses the WH word. I mean, every bad slur you can think of it, she's going to call Linda that. That person shows up on the scene. There goes my marriage. It's interesting, too, because they were able to present the facade that everything was perfect to other people. So she had room to work with this for a while. She really did. She absolutely did. Dan, for a very long time, even deep into what will end up going to divorce, obviously, still did not speak badly about her for the most part. He tried not to. He even said that until they started divorce proceedings, she was a perfect wife and mother as far as, in his opinion, what a perfect wife and mother is supposed to do. Keep the house lovely, go out to social functions, look good when they do things together, take care of the children. Children were happy. So all the things that are very surface level still looked good at this point. When Dan told Betty that he had hired Linda to be his legal assistant a few months later after he had dropped her name, Betty went through the roof, understandably. She was very certain that Linda was unqualified, and she knew that deep down the only reason that she was getting this job was because there was something nefarious going on between this girl, in her opinion, and her husband. (sighs) So when Betty found out that the assistant was Linda, she told him to fire her, fire the whore, by October 1st, 1983, or he could get the hell out of their house. That's it. The marriage is over. Well, October 1st came and went, but Linda did not. When Betty confronted Dan again, saying, I called your office and she's still there. Why is she still there, Dan? He said, you don't get to make decisions about my practice, about who works at my office, and you don't get to kick me out of my home. My name's on the deed, paid for by my money. You want to go? You get out. I'm not changing anything and you can't make me. Did you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? And that sleeping less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count? White blood cells protect our body against illnesses and diseases, fighting viruses, bacteria, and more. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and performance in our days. Having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. And of course, if you're anything like me, the holidays make it so much more complicated. For some, it's weird schedules around traveling. For others, it's just the additional excitement and stress around holiday planning, entertaining, plus trying to get everything done for the end of the year. Given all of that, we're so excited to share Beam Dream. You know we've been raving about Beam Dream's powder, their healthy hot cocoa for sleep. And today, Love Murder listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious seasonal flavors like cinnamon cacao, sea salt caramel, and white chocolate peppermint. Better sleep has never tasted better. A recent clinical study revealed Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. 
We're in the midst of a whirlwind East Coast tour, including getting to record a full episode and a Patreon from Jessie's home studio, which is, of course, how she lost her voice and why she isn't on these ads this week. Beam has been extra important with all of that change and disruption to my normal habits. Find out why Forbes and New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, take advantage of their biggest sale of the year and get up to 50% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash lovemurder. The discount is auto-applied at checkout, no code necessary. That's shopbeam.com slash lovemurder for up to 50% off. Ladies, there is nothing worse than suffering with an uncomfortable bra. Thankfully, Honey Love has revolutionized the bra game. Upgrade from traditional bras that use uncomfortable underwire and bulky fabrics that trap heat. Honey Love's bra features supportive bonding that eliminates the need for underwire without sacrificing lift. Plus, they're made with fabric that's so soft it feels like a second skin. You'll immediately feel and see the difference. It's so next level comfortable, you'll forget you're wearing it. For a limited time, you can get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com slash lovemurder. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com forward slash lovemurder. Staying on the how travel is awesome but also a challenge theme, you know that feeling when you get home from a long day and immediately want to take off your bra? Well, that is extra the case when you're on the go, on planes, trains, rental cars, etc. But with Honey Love, you'll never experience that again. Their bras are so comfortable, you'll forget you're wearing them. You may even sleep in them. Honey Love's bestseller crossover bra is so comfortable, it's sure to be your new go-to. This bra gives all the support of traditional bras without using any underwires. Plus, mesh detailing adds a touch of sexy. This is the one bra you'll actually enjoy wearing and won't want to take off. For the more relaxed lounge bra, I recommend their V-Bra. It offers the support of a traditional bra without the uncomfortable underwire. It's designed to lift and separate with molded cups, and it's not a shelf-like bra that creates a uniboob effect. Also, it doesn't stop there. Honey Love has more than just bras. They have incredibly comfortable shapewear, tanks, and leggings for everyday support. Treat yourself to the best bras on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash lovemurder. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off at honeylove.com slash lovemurder. After you purchase, they ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them that we sent you. It's time to ditch the underwire for good thanks to Honey Love. There are so many people out there working incredibly hard but still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way that paychecks are distributed. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. I love how much choice and agency earning gives the people who use it, especially with the holidays coming up and all of the wonderful but sometimes challenging additional expenses they bring, earning is so important. Life is absolutely difficult enough without having to worry about the timing of when your paycheck is going to land. And the holiday should be a time of excitement, not money anxiety. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. 
When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. This is, of course, a gigantic red flag. And this starts a trend that we will see of Betty making ultimatums or doing these over-the-top pronouncements or something about what she's going to do or what he needs to do and very much overestimating how much Dan cares about her and the marriage at this point. He's straight up good, leave. He would have loved for her to walk out. That would have been ideal, I think. I mean, later on, they both say that that would have been ideal, that they both wished that he could have been honest with her at that moment and said, if I'm feeling this way about you, if I'm choosing a hiring decision of some young woman I've only known for a handful of months over my wife of over a decade, who I have four children with, maybe there's a problem in our marriage. Yeah, huge problem. Huge problem. But he could not be honest with her, and she could not be honest with herself about what was going on. So this is a huge turning point. This is probably when, like I said, they should have both really checked in with themselves and been honest with each other that this was not working, but they didn't. I don't know if it's Dan's Catholic upbringing, both of their Catholic upbringing. I mean, for Betty, it seems kind of obvious that she had put everything into her marriage and all of her status revolved around being Dan's wife. But for Dan, why did he hang on so long? I think it was what he thought also was expected of him. Of course. To just slog through, yeah. As a Catholic husband. Yeah. So I do think that Dan needed a catalyst. I don't, he's one of those guys, and you see it all the time. I mean, women too, I think, that are genuinely in unhappy marriages, but they don't actually do anything about it until they start an affair. Yes, unfortunately. For some people, They can't do the inward work before that. But for him, it's also Linda's becoming the catalyst of him finally changing his life and finding a way to a happier, better life and situation. And instead of doing that for himself, he's waiting until there's this very young woman and now he's putting that on her too. So this is a whole lot of shit on Linda. I mean, also Linda gets shit on a lot. I feel very bad for Linda in this situation in many ways because She becomes synonymous with gold digging, home wrecking, all of this stuff. But you have these two people that are putting a lot on this. I mean, at the same time, she knows this man's married. She could walk away. I'm not giving her a total pass here. But this is a situation where I think almost everybody is in the wrong. Not Betty yet, but we're going to get there. (laughs) Don't you worry. At this time, we are firmly team Betty. She should have an expectation of her husband being faithful to her. That should be a given. Betty decides at this point that she's just going to be the best version of herself. She's going to work on herself. She's going to get plastic surgery. She's going to look amazing. She is going to be the best mom to the kids. She's going to be the best society wife. He's trying to cover up the fact that he's no longer in love with her by giving her things that she wants. So let's go on really nice trips. Let's go to New York City and stay in all five-star hotels and go first class and give her this experience that they never got when they were young and poor together in New York City. Yep. They were getting to a point where Betty was even entertaining and they went to a doctor together to see if she could reverse her tubal ligation. So after their fourth child, 
she had gotten her tubes tied because she didn't want to have any more kids. They could not financially do it at that point. And Dan had agreed. And now she's thinking, maybe I need to have another baby. They went to see if they could do anything. And the doctor said that they could probably have another child if they did artificial insemination because she doesn't need her fallopian tubes for that or some sort of like IVF situation. And he thought that that was unnatural and he refused. So she is now doing everything she can to continue to show him that he cannot get along without her and that he needs to be with her to have this perfect life, to have everyone think he has the perfect life. And she's going to continue to show up as this perfect Stepford wife. But it's not going to work. That's not the way this goes. It doesn't matter. When somebody's cheating on you, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because there's something wrong with them. And are they already having an affair? So we don't know exactly when this affair starts. But suffice to say, I think it was happening around the time, maybe a little bit after he hired her, when they started spending more time together. Because before, she was the receptionist for the whole building, so he'd have to hang out down there and talk to her to have an excuse. And then after he hired her, he got her her own office. They were spending all this time together. Other secretaries were noticing that he is going out to long lunches with her. They're leaving early to get drinks together. Whether or not anyone saw anything physical, it was kind of an open secret that something not great was going on because he did not act like this around the other receptionists. Yeah. So an emotional affair was happening regardless of whether we knew it was a physical affair. Yes. And there's some witnesses we'll talk about later that would put the affair, the physical side of the affair, probably starting around the end of that year. But we don't know for sure because later on there's other people that say, no, they weren't having a physical affair, not for a long time. There's even people that are still like Team Dan who are saying, I don't think they ever had a physical affair until he was separated. Okay. I don't think that's the case. I think that's people who love Dan protecting his reputation. I think there was certainly an affair happening by the end of 1983, the beginning of 1984. So... It got to a point where Betty was calling the lead, like, office manager type person, crying, begging to find out, tell me I'm not crazy. Because Dan keeps saying, what are you talking about? Of course I'm not having an affair. So he is lying straight to her face. He is gaslighting her. He's making her feel insane. And so she's calling now his other employees and begging them to tell her what's going on. It got so bad that one of the employees, this woman that Betty was calling, said to him, look, I know. I see what's going on. Linda is also talking about how you took her to this restaurant, how you guys are going to take a trip together. She's not being discreet. Your wife is calling me in shambles. You need to sort your shit out. Sort your shit out. End your marriage or end your affair. And she thought it went fine. But then I think it was like two months later, she was fired. November 22nd, 1983 was Dan's birthday. And on the advice of a well-meaning friend, Betty got dressed to the nines and went to Dan's office to surprise him with a dozen roses. She also got him a little gag gift and a bottle of Dom Perignon. So basically this friend of hers said, if you feel like maybe your husband's stepping out on you and you love him and you want to fight for your family, just sack up, like do nice romantic things for him. Get involved in his life again. Be there for him. Don't nag and pick and be paranoid and angry. Just try to woo him over again. So she shows up looking gorgeous, 
bringing all this stuff to the party and immediately she meets somebody that she's never met before. It's a new office manager receptionist type person who is like, well, do you have an appointment with Mr. Broderick? And she's like, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm the wife. I didn't get to meet you yet. They're in this brand new office that just looks out on the bay. It's just gorgeous. And she's like, well, Mr. Broderick isn't here. He never came back after lunch. And she's like, okay, well, is his assistant here? Is Ms. Cole Kenna here? And she goes, no, she also has not come back from lunch. Can I take a message for you? And she's like, no, I'm going to wait for him. And she pushed her way into his office. And she saw that there was paper plates with cake on them and wine bottles and wine glasses and balloons. And it looked like Linda had thrown him a birthday party. And then they had left. And she went into Linda's office and... For Linda's position, she had a lovely office that was right off his with designer fixings and fancy curtains and even a picture of Dan from when he was, before he was married, when he was young. So why does she have that if that's her boss in her office? She said that that was when she knew. She said, I didn't want to believe it. And then I finally believed it. Yeah. Which was that she was suspicious this whole time, but she wanted to be proven wrong. Of course. And being proven wrong would be show up with all that stuff and your husband's like working at his desk and is excited to see you. Exactly. Which isn't hard. That's not a hard thing to ask for. But if they're having an affair, then that's not a possibility. It's also just that he is not even really trying to hide any of this stuff. He doesn't think she's entitled to know where he is. Yeah. Which is blows my mind that he has such a low regard for this marriage at this point that he doesn't think his wife is entitled to know where he is or what he's doing on his birthday. I know. It's really sad. So she drove home. She took almost all of Dan's very, very fancy custom-made and custom-tailored suits, power suits, thousands of dollars worth of clothes and fancy ties and the like. And while her children were screaming and crying and begging her to stop, she lit them all on fire in the backyard. So she was using gas. She started a fire. The kids are begging her to stop. They don't know where their dad is. They don't know what's going on. They don't know why their mother is so angry and now burning all of their father's clothing. And then when they were pretty much all burned up, she poured paint all over the ashy remains just so nothing could be salvaged from this at all. I mean, I think it was already unsalvageable once it was on fire, but, you know, just the icing (laughs) on the cake. She's just really, she's still really mad. So he ended up coming home several hours later. So again, I don't know why he wasn't thinking that maybe his family would like to celebrate his birthday with him. Yeah, and his kids, too. Yes. And his eldest daughter would later say that the weirdest part of the whole thing was that they weren't fighting, that he came in and he, of course, wanted to talk to Betty and he wanted to know what she was doing. But for the first time ever, he's not saying, what the hell is wrong with you? What are you doing? Are you insane? Why are you doing this? He, in fact, was just very calm and tried to explain to Betty. He said, look, I did have a little office birthday party. And then afterwards, I went to a deposition and I don't know, I guess Linda went shopping or something, but she was off for the afternoon as well. I wasn't spending time with her. And, you know, then I went out with the guys and here I am. 
what do you want from me? Yeah, but also, like, why are you using gasoline and flames by our children? Yes. And so Betty would later say that at the time, which when he first showed up, she said, you won't move out, so I've moved you out. Here's your checkbook. You can leave. But he didn't. He just said, Betty, come, oh, come on. He called her Bets. Bets. This is ridiculous. And he just so matter-of-factly and smoothly lied right to her face. I mean, he is a lawyer. That she felt so stupid. She felt ashamed. She later told their housekeeper that he had come home drunk and smelling a booze or something, and maybe she had been mad about it, and so she lit them on fire just because she was mad that they all smelled like booze. There was some like weird excuse she had, but she was lying to the housekeeper about what happened because at that point, again, she's caught off balance. She doesn't think that maybe he isn't cheating on her. Well, you don't want to think either. So your brain's working against your logic at that point. That's like what happens with gaslighting too. Someone you love is telling you that it's not true and you're like, oh, well, if someone I love is telling me it's not true, even though I think it is. And what do you want to believe? Like, do you really want to listen to your gut against all evidence when you're the person you love that you've loved for years and years is looking you straight in the face and saying it's not happening? Why are you behaving this way? But she said later on she should have known because even though he was very calm and measured with her, he wasn't like, are you fucking out of your mind? Like, like an innocent person would be if somebody did that. It was like the first clue that, oh, no, he's trying to get out of this, but he is not being mad at me back because he's guilty. He knows he deserves it. Yeah. So this went on for months and months. Betty was not the only one going crazy here. Linda had also had a boyfriend at some point during this affair. And this was a really nice guy who seemed to love her. He wanted to marry her. He wanted to help put her through law school so she could be a lawyer herself because she loved working in the law office. But the guy noticed that Linda was constantly talking about Dan. She talked about him in this worshipful way. She was just completely head over heels, besotted with him, and it was very clear. Also, anything that he needed, anytime he called, it was just she was like, it wouldn't matter what they were doing. She was out the door. She was going to go help him do whatever he needed to do. So he ended up getting really frustrating. He finally confronted her about whether they were having an affair or not. And at this point, so this is sometime in 1984, she finally broke down and was crying and saying that they had had an affair for a little while, a physical affair, but that it had ended because it wasn't right. Linda was deeply ashamed of being the other woman. She just kept thinking about what her father would think. You know, her mother had passed away and all this stuff, and she just knew that her father wouldn't approve. And he felt ashamed, too. He needed to make it work with his wife. He needed to figure out how to be a better family man. So even though it seems like they both still had these very strong feelings for each other, and the responsible thing to do at this point, if you're truly breaking it off, is to stop working together, stop communicating, cut off all contact, and don't be around each other if you really do want to be a better person. Or the alternative is Dan actually is open and honest with his wife and ends the marriage. But what they were doing was not working. Now, she's dating this guy. He can tell that she's in love with her boss. And Dan is not really letting her go. He is now trying to be a better husband for Betty because he's decided to work on the marriage. So now he's really taking her to Europe for weeks and he's spending time with the kids. And Betty now at this point thinks, oh my gosh, it was a fling. Maybe he did have the affair, but it was a fling. It was just a fling. 
and he's back with me because it seemed like he was very present with her at that point. But the whole time he was doing that, the other boyfriend, the other guy, said that he was sending her beautiful red roses every week. He was sending her jewelry. He was sending her presents. So even when he's in Europe with his wife, he's still finding ways to show Linda that he's still thinking of her. He's really not present. He's not present. His body's there, but his mind is still with Linda. And so eventually this guy gave her an ultimatum. It was a, right around Christmas 1984, and they were supposed to be spending the holiday together, and Dan had called about something allegedly work-related. And he basically said, it's Christmas. You don't have to do that, and I know you don't have to do that. And if you go, that's it for us. You need to choose me and us and a future over your married boss. And she just said, I can't do it. I wish I could. I really wish I could, but I can't. And that was it. That was the end of their relationship. So sad. It is. It seemed like the guy was really in love with her, too, because he talked to Bella Stumbo for her book. And he's like, she chose poorly. And maybe things would be a lot different if she had picked me. So meanwhile, at the same time, the house that they bought in La Jolla, well, Dan was on the rise, was not exactly befitting their station anymore at this point. And it had also had some sort of crack in the foundation. It needs some massive repairs. So they moved out into this crazy seven-bedroom house on La Jolla shores looking over the ocean, but it was just a rental house. Well, they looked at new houses to buy. And Betty later says that they must have looked at 100 houses over the year, maybe more. And Dan thought something was wrong with all of them. This is obviously, he's, I mean, it's just, it's not even a metaphor. It's just obvious that he's looking at these houses and he can't see his life with his wife in any of them. Literally. <laughs> yeah, he can't. <laughs> so she's like, Dan was such a pain in the ass. He didn't like any of these houses. We keep looking at this and that and the other thing. And she's seeing that they're going to look at all these houses because she thinks he's planning a future with her. And he's just keeping her in limbo in this gorgeous rental house, but still a rental house. And... I think that this all came to a head, kind of like the other situation with Linda and her boyfriend around Christmas 1984, at the same time it came to the head with the Dan and Betty situation, which is kind of what I'm wondering. We're going to talk about what's going on with Dan and Betty on Christmas Day in 1984. That's what I was going to ask before you got into the houses, <laughs> if this is a direct correlation of how this is going down. So the kids at this point, I think, were... 14, 15, 9, and 6. So the older girls are 15 and 14. So they're teenagers. And the little boys are 9 and 6 years old. And it's Christmas morning. And Betty said that at this point, she expected a big old, I'm sorry, I fucked up ring, essentially, as a Christmas present. Remember when, like, Kobe Bryant cheated or something and he gave her like a $5 million ring or something. Yep. That's what Betty Broderick expected. And I'm decently confident she would have told Dan that because she doesn't seem to be one that hid her thoughts or desires. Beats around the bush. Yeah, no. And she said that there was like another girlfriend of hers who had been cheated on by her lawyer husband and they had gotten back together and worked it out and he bought her a Ferrari. So she was expecting some big fancy ring. So it's... 1984, Christmas morning, they have these beautiful children, more presents than you could probably imagine because he's doing so well. And Betty opens up her big, I'm sorry, present. 
It did not go well. In her words, it was a rinky-dink little ring that wasn't even big enough for her daughter. So she immediately threw a fit. She threw the ring in his face. Do we know what it was, though? Like, do we know how much it was? She would say later that it was in the low 100s. 100,000? No, no. Less than $1,000. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's what she contends. We don't know exactly the value of the ring or anything about the real ring. I don't know if she knew it. Because, you know, a smaller stone can be worth a ton if it's like a perfect blah, blah, blah. Whatever it was, this stone wasn't big enough for her. And I don't think she stuck around to find out how much it was because she threw it in his face and she told him, because he's trying to say, well, if you don't like it, we'll just return it. We'll get you a different ring. And she said that it, it wasn't even worth the amount of gas she'd have to put in her car to go down to the jewelry store and get a different one. That's how cheap and worthless this ring was. You have to remember, this is in front of their children, that she is ruining Christmas morning, ruining Christmas memories, which is just egregious. So she would later say, now this is years down the line she's saying this, no self-awareness. Quote, he owed me big for the two years of hell he had put me through. My life had been the worst shit. And so I wanted this humongous ring, a Zaverit. And the ring I wanted was in the thousands. I can't remember how many, 10,000, 30,000, which of course this is the 80s. So that would be a whole heck of a lot more. But it was a major ring. I was looking for my reward. But instead, he had the nerve to give me this little piece of shit in the low hundreds. Well, that was it for Dan. I'm guessing that that Christmas call was, I'm ending my marriage. Come be with me. Because he went to Palm Springs. So obviously he was just GTFing out and asking his erstwhile mistress that he was actually in love with to come meet him on Christmas. And she's saying, gotta go. Bye, boyfriend. (laughs) Okay, here we go. He's actually gonna leave his wife. Huzzah. Oh, it's just so gross all around. Also, think about those kids. They're left there with Betty fuming, steaming. So Betty started by ruining Christmas, and then their dad just takes off. So both of these parents are not putting their children first in any capacity at all. They're both only thinking about their own desires, wants. They want to punish the other parent, make the other parent look worse somehow. And this just goes on and on and on. So two months later, in February of 1985, Dan told Betty that he was done. He was leaving. Now, from Betty's perspective, how Dan told her was, things haven't been great. We're not really getting along. It's been really rough. I need some space. And I can't do the amount of processing and thinking and working through this marriage that I need to do in this house with you. So I'm going to move back into the house that they were renovating. Yep the house they owned, and be there alone for a little while while we figure this out. So that's what she's hearing. That's what she says he said, and he totally might have. Now, Dan's story is that he said, this is it. Our marriage has been really bad for a very long time, and I want a separation, essentially. Like, he would admit later he did not use the D word. He did not say we're getting a divorce. He said, this is a separation. But he made it clear that this was a break. This was final. But he also still, at this point, denied that this had anything to do with Linda and that he was involved with Linda. So he is still omitting and he's not being honest. And it's driving Betty crazy, but also giving her false hope. Yeah, absolutely. But I feel like a lot of people do that when they 
It's like they're slowly trying to get one toe at a time out the door. And that's, I think, what he's doing. And I can kind of understand it from Dan's perspective because Betty's scary. Her reactions to things are very over the top. So maybe he's thinking tactically that this is a better way to go about it, just slowly letting her come to terms with it and hoping that she gets so angry she eventually says, I'm filing for divorce. But it's also a coward's way of doing it. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To just withdraw. And he's essentially kind of like ghosting from the marriage rather than being direct about wanting to be out of the marriage. He was 100% at this point seeing Linda, in love with Linda. He considered, and later it would go on their divorce paperwork, that this was the, the date of separation. Betty would not feel that way. She would be shocked that the day that he moved back into their old house was the date of separation in her mind. She would spend most of the rest of 1985 oscillating between this false hope and this really intense, bitter rage. So she's living in the rental house. He's back in their house at Coral Gables. They didn't have any furniture there because they had moved everything into the rental house. So she's like, he's going to be so lonely, just all in that house by himself, no furniture, rambling around that he is going to come back to me and the kids. But of course he did not. So she ended up taking the kids on a little holiday for Easter of 1985. And this is a couple months after he had left the family. And when they got back to the rental house, it was full of rats. Apparently there had been some sort of rat infestation while they were gone. So she called Dan for help. And according to Dan later on, she was extremely rude. She was angry. She was yelling at him. Because he was trying to work through, like, well, what's going on? Can you call an exterminator? And she was saying, I'm not calling anybody. You get your fucking ass over here and you deal with this. This is your children's home. This is where your children are living and the house is overrun with rats. You need to get over here. And he was like, you've got credit cards. You call an exterminator. You can take the kids to a hotel. Do whatever you want. I'm not coming. And he hung up on her. And this is another example, though, of neither of them putting the kids' best interests at heart because Betty didn't do that. Betty did not take her children to a hotel and say, we're going to have a fun family vacation while I get the exterminators in there. Instead, I think she wanted to punish them so that Dan would find out about this. She and the kids killed the rats. She killed the rats? They went out and bought traps, and her kids would later say that they heard them snapping all night. They roasted a rat alive, apparently, when it was trapped in their oven, that another baby rat she found and had the kids watch her flush it down the toilet. Oh, my God. So this is what the kids are being subjected to because she's not going to do what he says, which is go to a hotel and get an exterminator. Even though that's the safest thing. Yeah. That's the safest and best thing for the kids. She's going to stay in that house and she's going to exterminate the rats herself with or in front of her children so that they can go back to daddy and say mommy had to kill all the rats because she wants the high ground. And she can say... To her friends, can you believe this? That he made me and the children kill all the rats because he was too self-obsessed and too cheap to do anything about it. This is going to go on and on and on. Not good. So the kids obviously told him at some point, right? Yes, and she told him too, of course, because she wanted to tell him. She wanted to rub it in that they or his children were forced to exterminate rats. So despite the separation and despite this rat situation, four days later... Four days after the rat event, it was their 16th wedding anniversary. It's in April. April the 12th. The rat anniversary. It was apparently the 16th wedding anniversary. The traditional present is a rodent corpse. 
So they had planned on still going out to dinner, even though Dan is considering this separated, but she's thinking her husband's taking her out to dinner for their 16th wedding anniversary. So how are they possibly separated? Uh, Yeah, I don't know if you do that when you're separated. (laughs) No, this is very mixed messages. The anniversary is on hold always if you're separated. Well, I'm sure Linda must have had something to say about the whole situation or Dan had second thoughts after Ratgate. But in any case, he calls her on their anniversary and says, oh, I know we were supposed to get together, but I just had a business meeting pop up. So not going to make it. So now she is fully in fuego. Just like that rat in the oven. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Just like that rat in the oven. She starts getting really angry. She is now, again, back consumed with the idea of him having an affair with Linda. And I guess that the kids had said that sometimes Linda was over at their house when they did visits with their dad. Not okay. So she's starting to get inklings that this is really happening. And she says, you know what? Screw it. I want him to see that life isn't all just having sex with young people whenever you want when you have four children to take care of and feed. And so at this point, the kids had been primarily with her with just some weekend visits to their dad. So she, one by one, over four days, dropped each child off at his house when he wasn't even home, when he's at work, and left the kids alone there or if one of their older siblings by, like, age. I think it was, like, the eldest girl, then the second. He said the kids were crying. They didn't want to be separated. They didn't know why their mom was so angry and telling them that they couldn't live with her anymore. In Betty's twisted logic, she had some excuse for it. Like, I guess she was supposed to go to New York for her dad's 75th birthday, and it was coming up. I don't even think it was immediate. It was just coming up. And she was saying, I don't need to make arrangements. They have a fully capable parent. He just doesn't know how to parent. So I'm just going to dump the kids off there. And have him figure it out for the weekend and see how he likes it. And she thought, in the back of her head, he's going to realize how hard this is. He's going to finally see my sacrifice. He's going to see how hard I work with the kids. He's going to see how much they miss me and they're crying and they're miserable. And he's going to have to look into their faces. He's going to have to look right into their beautiful little faces, crying faces, and have recognition that he ruined our family, that he's doing this to them. And he's not going to be able to take care of them anyways because he doesn't know shit about it. So ha 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 ha. So she goes off and she thinks he's going to become crying back to her, begging her to come back and saying he's sorry. And he did absolutely no such thing. First of all, he was like, legally, you just gave me a gift because you just plopped the kids in my lap. And guess what? They're in my custody now and they're going to stay there. He's like, you can't do what I do. You can't make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year. But guess what? I can hire somebody to cook and clean and watch the kids. So they're mine now and they're not going back to you. This spectacularly blew up in Betty's face. Yeah. It's just so sad when that's held as leverage because she obviously like could have also worked and had a career. I mean, I don't know if so much he said that to her. She interpreted it that way. There's a lot of we're getting a story from Betty too. And I'm sure that infuriated her more thinking what I just said, too. Yeah, I don't know if Betty ever really wanted to work. She just didn't want to be replaced. Yep. Okay. It's not even like, well, you didn't even give me an opportunity. I think he would have if she wanted to. I think that there was a a year or two where she did try to go back to teaching school because that's what her degree was in, and it didn't really work out. So I don't know if he had ever prevented her from working at all. The rage in this case was how easily he replaced her, how she thought that this was going to work in her favor to show him how irreplaceable she was 
when really it was quite easy for him. And he was like, plop. Yep. And, you know, the kids were suffering because they would later say he didn't really know how to be a dad. He didn't know how to be a primary parent, but he tried. Before they had any sort of staff, they said they just ate a lot of steak and potatoes because it was the only thing he knew how to make. So at least he was trying. And the kids are becoming pawns in this. Now, generously, you could say about Dan, if you're looking at his best side and what the people who knew and loved him thought was obviously Betty's unstable. And he keeping the kids and keeping them in a routine, even though they miss their mom because she's always been there for them, is better for them. This is more stable for them. So this is him doing something good for the kids, keeping them essentially away from their mother. But he wasn't really because he was offering her weekend visitation. It was just flip-flopped. He had primary custody now. Yeah. But on the less sympathetic way, you could see how this is legally good for him. If they're going into a divorce situation, she doesn't work and she doesn't have the kids. He has primary custody. What is she owed? So she's owed some alimony. But she was shocked to find out that California was a no-fault divorce state. So even if she could prove that he was having an affair with Linda, it doesn't matter. He's putting himself in a legally strong position now for this divorce. He's also giving himself plenty of time to hide assets, to make his financial situation look as small as it possibly can, given his stature and his situation, so that when they finally do go to divide assets, she doesn't get probably half of what she actually is owed. Yeah. And she's in New York with her family. She was, and she came back and she's like, well, when do you want me to pick up the kids? Must have been a rough weekend. And he's like, nope, I'm keeping them. It was great. You can F off, Betty. So now she's alone. Spiral. In this rental house, the rat house, rambling around. There's seven bedrooms in that place, completely losing her mind because she's completely isolated. And she was also losing the support of her friends and family at this point because people were saying at this point that you couldn't even say, how are you doing? Or good morning to her without her going on a full-on rant about her husband and his whore and what they were doing to her. And it was at inappropriate times, like a school pickup or something. And so, of course, people at first are very sympathetic. How could that happen? No way. Not you guys. But then after months and months and it's the same old story and she won't do anything to make it better, she just keeps digging in, people are getting tired of it. Yeah. Even her own family, her parents were growing exhausted of this situation at this point and embarrassed about it. But there's still lots of mixed messages going on at this point because even now, Dan still has not told her that he's officially divorcing her or they're really ending it. And she's now trying to get his attention the only way she knows how, which is running up hundreds of thousands of dollars on their credit cards. Because then he, just like the old days, he's going to have to pay attention to her. And it gets very, I mean, she was taking herself on lavish vacations. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't have the kids. She's might as well. She's living her life. She's buying $15,000 evening gowns. She is just out there spending that money. She bought, I think, some sort of sports car. I think it was a Corvette for herself. And he had never put any limits on this. He was also still paying $9,000 for just her bills and her upkeep. I think $9,000 a month was just her spending money. Wow. Which is 1980-something money, too. So at that point, he goes, okay, I have to staunch the bleeding. 
So he finally breaks it to her that they are officially getting divorced at this point. The D word. Yes. And I think it was like a couple days after that, he was still letting her come in and out of the Coral Gables house as she saw fit because they're both there with the kids. Linda wasn't living there. Linda had her own place, which I guess he had co-signed on. He had like helped buy her a condo, which comes out later. He, I don't think she knew this at the point. So he was still freely letting her come in and out of the home, even after he told her that they were, he was filing for divorce. And at one point she was there while he was at work and she was, I think, bringing the kids home from something. And she saw that there was a Boston cream pie, which I guess was one of Dan's favorites on the countertop. And she started grilling the housekeeper about who made that, who made that for Dan. And the housekeeper's like, oh, I think it was Miss Linda. And she just went apeshit. She took that pie up to the bedroom and she took chunks of it with her hand and smeared it on the walls, on the bedspread. She went in his closet and she just smeared it on his suits. She just went to town. This is a couple of days after that. So he's like, okay, great. So now I filed for divorce and I'm also going to get a restraining order because you can't be in my house anymore. And she was like, our house, it's our house. And he's like, nope, my house, I will give you half of the proceeds when I sell it. So in that respect, it is half of your house, but you are no longer welcome there. And she defied the restraining order two days after that. She went into his house and threw a wine bottle through a glass window. While the kids were there? I believe so, yes. Despite all of this, even after that behavior and even after the restraining order, one night she called him, begging him please come over. Let's actually just work this out. We can be reasonable. I just need to talk to you. And so when he did come over to talk to her at her rental place, she just said, we're not winning in this situation. The kids aren't winning in this situation. We owe it to ourselves to really try, Dan. You've been telling me all this time that nothing's really going on with you and Linda. And it's fine if you had a fling. It's fine. I will get over it. But we have to get over it together and move forward. And finally, at that point, Dan did tell Betty the truth that she had been right. He had been having an affair with Linda. He was seeing Linda. And in fact, he was in love with Linda. And he was going forward with the divorce. There was a future for them as co-parents, but absolutely not as husband and wife. And there never would be again. And he told her this by himself? Yes. And so it's obviously muddled. There's different accounts of what exactly was said at this. I think on Dan's side, I don't think he feels like he admitted that he had been having an affair for two years. I don't think he said that he said that. I think he did say, I'm going to be honest with you. I am seeing Linda and I've never been honest with you before. And we have a relationship and we're going to continue building a future together. So I think he might've said something like that, but she read into everything that was going on. He also might've told her, we don't know because this is, it gets very, he said, she said in here. Yeah, of course. And we only have one person. Exactly. And so what she read it as or he said it very explicitly, either way, she knew now that she had been right all along and he had been making her feel crazy. Yeah. This is where things continue to go downhill. I mean, it just every story gets worse and worse. Betty went through a string of divorce attorneys. She had a very hard time finding an attorney to represent her because he was so well-connected in the legal community. She had to go up to Los Angeles to find somebody to represent her at I think several points. I think she had a couple different LA lawyers. She began to get deeply paranoid, but I don't think you can really call it paranoid because it was for well-founded reasons. At some point during this long divorce process, he becomes 
the president of the San Diego Bar Association. Yeah. I mean, how is she going to have a good relationship with any attorneys? And then what about the judges that he's buddy-buddy with in all these cases? There was a whole story about how she went to a family friend who is the best family attorney in all of San Diego and said, hey, I know you're friends with Dan, but please represent me. And he said, I can't. It's actually, it's not even you guys. It's that I am going to be a judge. And so I'm actually trying to get rid of my caseload. And then she showed up to her next hearing and he was representing Dan. And then he did become a judge, a family law judge. Assigned by the president of the Bar Association. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I don't think the president of the Bar Association decides that. But still, I mean, he was in it. So she's not wrong. And later on, her attorney will also find evidence, her criminal attorney, I mean, I'm pretty sure we can all see where this one's going, (laughs) will find evidence that Dan was, in fact, making some questionable investments in one of his brother's companies in Colorado, he believes specifically to hide assets. Oh. And there was like a sketchy system of how they were determining the worth of his legal practice as well. So she is most likely, very likely, in the right in this case. So we've got Betty who, if you just look at it black and white at this point, she was cheated on. She was lied to. She was gaslit. And now he is doing sneaky legal maneuvers in order to cheat her out of money she feels she's entitled to. Just save money. I know. Yep. And the kids. She was the one. I mean, she cannot argue that she's the one that dumped the kids there while they were crying. But she did that to begin with, but then he kept them. And I'm sure he was worried about the kids' well-being, but he also realized it was good for his divorce situation. He's a lawyer. I mean, Betty is being victimized. This is a horrible thing to happen to a woman. But then she starts doing all this absolutely fucking insane stuff. Like she is going in and she's violating restraining orders. She's also not being there for the kids because she's getting angry with him. So he says something like, you know, kids every year at Christmas, they did a ski trip. And he's like, you should take the kids and do the ski trip. He's like, I'll pay for it completely. And then they got an argument about how much money he was going to give her for the ski trip. And so she said, I'm not going. I'm not taking them. I'm just not doing it. I'm not going to be there for them. I'm not doing it for any less than this astronomical son that you have to give me to punish him. And so he said, fine, I'll take them skiing. And guess what? Linda's coming with me. And so he took them skiing and she's on the phone with her kids and finds out that they're sleeping in the same room with her children on a Christmas ski vacation. So she calls ass down to the house that she once shared with him. And guess what? There's some Christmas presents still under the tree that are to Linda and to everyone. And she goes absolutely berserk and starts just slashing every Christmas present and trashing the place. What do you mean slashing? Like she gets a knife and she starts cutting open all the packages and slashing up like it was some sort of sweater he was giving or something. And she's like cutting it to smithereens and like slashing through all the gifts and all the gift wrapping and tearing everything open. Yeah. And this is 1985. Yes, this is Christmas 1985. So it's been a year since what he effectively believed was the end of their marriage. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I'm going to buy a new house for myself (laughs) at this point because – I'm not going to live in Coral Gables anymore because he understood that she felt like this is the home where she raised her family. This is where she brought home two of her babies. And he felt like in some way she had a right to be at the house, but obviously she cannot be. So he bought a new house 
It was actually a house that he had liked when they were looking at houses that she did not like. So he's like, you didn't even like this house. I'm buying it for me. And guess what? Linda's going to be moving in at some point. And so now he has three mortgages, essentially. He has Coral Gables, which is he's trying to get rid of. And he's telling Betty he's going to give her half. That's like she's going to have the money from the house. So she should be motivated to sell this house as well. His new house. And then he's also buying Betty a house. Now, at this point... I'm not really as sure about the details of him buying his house versus her house because he might have been trying to get her out of the Coral Gables house faster because she would later tell people that when she decided to buy this house that she ends up living in, that is something at like $2 million in today's money. Okay. So I think it was like $675,000 or something back in 1988 or whatever. She's telling friends now that Dan sent her the money for the down payment and that they are planning on tearing down the house. It was apparently on this like beautiful street, one of the best streets in La Jolla with the best views. And so the lot itself was worth the money that they paid. And so she's like, we're going to tear it down and we're going to build a house together. We're working on things. And he's saying, absolutely not. I, of course, gave Betty the $150,000 for the down payment because I'm going to buy her a house. That is a house for her and for my children to live in. I'm not going to be there. So we are, again, in a situation where they have very different interpretations of what is going on and who's moving into this house. So then she finds out he's bought his own house and he's trying to unload the Coral Gables house. And Betty's still trying to get his attention, was basically not doing anything to stop the sale of the house. Like, I mean, she was doing everything she could to not have their family home sell, even though she's pretending like she wants it to be sold. And Dan just says, okay, fine. And he figures out a legal way to get around her and sell it out from under her. So now she's got her new big house that is, you know, it's not great. It was supposed to be a teardown. So it needs a lot of repairs if she's going to keep the remaining structure. So she feels like she's in this huge, rambling, teardown mansion all by herself. Her husband has a new shiny mansion, a really nice house, which, of course, she doesn't think it's nice. She thinks it's in a bad neighborhood. She would tell her children. And he just sold their family home out from under her. Now, at the time that she finds this out from her attorney, she was making pot roast or something. She was making dinner for her parents who were visiting from New York and Betty gets off the phone. She had just put dinner on the table for her family. And she goes, I have to go do something. I'll be right back. So they're like, what the hell is going on now? And she drove her Suburban because that's what she drove her children around in. I guess there was a vanity plate that said load them up was her vanity plate because she drove like all the kids around. And she went to Coral Gables, which Dan was still living in with her family because he had not yet moved into the new house. And she first tried to, I guess, set it on fire. And when that did not work, she got in her car and she drove straight through the front door. With her family or by herself? She's by herself in the car, but her kids are in the house having dinner. Oh, my God. Now, it sounds like that was the front of the house and the kids were actually in the back of the house, so they were safe. And in some accounts, like, she blows the doors open, but really she just kind of rammed it and one of the doors was off the hinges. But the kids did say it sounded like an explosive of went course. off. Of course. Of yeah. course. And at that point, he runs to his front door and sees his wife in the car. And he 
allegedly this was the only time he was physically abusive towards her. There was like one other time where she said there was an accident where he accidentally gave her a black eye, but we don't know the details about that. And she maintained it was an accident. But this is the only time that the kids saw physical proof of him doing anything physical to her because he ripped her out of the car. (laughs) He like went, opened the door and like yanked her out of the car and was physically restraining her. And he ended up calling the police and having her committed to a mental hospital. And when the police arrived on the scene later on to document all the damage, they found a butcher knife in her car as well. So she's committed on an involuntary hold because he was also saying, I'm Dr. Broderick. He was using his MD. Like, I'm a medical doctor and my wife needs to be committed. She's unhealthy. And her parents were so aghast at this whole thing that they leave while she's in the hospital. So now she feels like she has no support. Yeah, They're just... Like, she's beyond help, they think, at this point. Like, maybe a mental hospital is where she needs to be, obviously. So now she's saying, can you believe my husband did this to me? So she's talking to her girlfriends, like her society girlfriends, and they're already sick of the situation. And now she's being like, and then he put me in a mental hospital. Isn't that crazy? And they're like, maybe that's what you need, babe. That's what you need. Like, what do you say? It's been a couple years now. Why don't we just sell the house, process the feelings, move on, get out there, start dating. And she's like, no, I will never be over this. So Satan literally takes over her body. (laughs) Crawled right out of Eddie Broderick. (laughs) So now we have reached the era of Betty's unhinged answering machine messages. She started leaving these absolutely insane messages, calling Linda, the C word, or the office so-and-so. She called him F-word head. I like, I, it gets so aggressive that I'm like not even going to get in the habit, even though I usually say the F-word because it is nasty, these messages. And then it gets even worse because he realizes now that this is great evidence, the way she's speaking, the way she's talking. You're going to read me one of them though, right? Okay, so this is an early one. Fuckhead, come get the kids. I want to get rid of them, but I don't like driving to your shitty neighborhood. Hurry up and come get them, asshole. So that's on the answering machine, so her children could eventually hear that. Fuckhead and C-word, come get the kids. And then she said, I actually love this machine, because then I can really just say anything I want. Tell the kids that you don't think it's wrong, that you're screwing the C in the hall that has her legs wide open for anybody who comes by, and you paid for it? God, you've got a sense of humor. I love it. You're all effed. Saying that... (laughs) answering the family answering machine it's like you've reached the Broderick's with blah 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 and our dog Woof! and then she's like saying that <laughs> she's no she's saying the shit and then so dan starts now bringing them to the office and having his secretaries transcribe them because this is evidence of how unhinged she is and obviously she shouldn't have the kids and he takes it up a notch he has linda leave the family message saying hi you've reached the Broderick's he was antagonizing her to leave even crazier messages. And so now she's talking to Linda. She said, C-word, what's this? We can't come to the phone shit. You're not supposed to come to the phone at the house. You're supposed to screw at the house and answer the phone at the office. Dumb people drive me crazy. Or C-word, what are you doing on this machine? Don't you have a toilet to live in on your own? C-word, what is your voice doing on this machine? If it's the Broderick residence, that assumes you're a Broderick and you're nothing but a C. Anyway, where are my darling children? I mean, it's nasty. Does it say anywhere how many she left in total? Hundreds, hundreds, multiple many a day. 
multiple many. <laughs> this is another situation where I don't think that Dan is protecting his children from it because they would just let the tape run. So the kids are in their house hearing this because they want the tape to catch her saying this stuff. And so the kids are being subjected to this naturally. So nobody is taking care of the kids at this point. Nobody's like looking out for them. It's just, ugh. No, how can you? You're like literally batting at a million other things all the time. I mean, even Dan's receptionists and secretaries and people who worked for him were really horrified by this because he's then bringing them the tapes and they're going to have to listen to this and they're transcribing every dirty, ugly word. One of his former employees said, quote, just listening to her gave me the creeps. She said that even years later, she still shudders at the sound of Betty's voice. She said her voice was so maniacal. It reminded me of the exorcist. She sounded so evil, especially when she laughed. It was a cackle. So he starts taking these to the court. He starts essentially saying that she's violating her restraining order by leaving these harassing messages. He also starts doing something which I don't know exactly if this was legal, but I think also he wasn't paying court-mandated child support, so I guess it was legal. He was just giving her voluntary spousal support because she doesn't even have the kids full-time at this point. He was giving her $9,000 a month, and he started docking her. Essentially, he said, I'll try to hit her where it hurts for Betty, which is money. She wants money. And so she gets docked, I forget what it was, like $100, $1,000, something, some amount of money every time she leaves one of these disgusting messages. And to the point where then he's going, well, you don't get any money this month because you left all of these messages. So now she's pissed. 1,700 messages. <laughs> yes. So, so now she's pissed off, of course. She's going through all these attorneys because I think that even though it, she really was correct, the, the legal system in the area was not in favor of her. At the same time, I do not think that she was trying to get along with any of her attorneys. She was very hard to work with. She was very obtuse. And I think she thought that if she didn't have adequate representation, that he couldn't actually push the divorce through. Yep. But that was not the case. <laughs> he, was, he was going to be able to push this divorce case. I mean, it's really, it's really quite sad what's going on in this situation. She even went to somebody and was like, well, I have this hearing and they're saying that I'm in contempt of court if I don't appear, but I don't have an attorney. What am I going to do? And they're like, it's conflict of interest. We can't represent you. I think the problem was Betty was also trying to get somebody that was in their circle to do it for her because she wanted that extra, like, look at your friend is on my side, but of course they're not going to do that. So it was a whole mess of everybody making really bad decisions, except for Dan, who's making great legal decisions. He's showing up to everything. He's giving everything to the court. He has records of everything. He's looking like the perfect dad with this unhinged crazy ex-wife and now also she's not doing herself any favors because he's like see what I've been dealing with you know another way to look at it is he's the one making her crazy and now he gets to sit back and be like I was suffering in silence all those years look at this behavior I know and I think like historically if you take something to court and you're able to lay it all out in front of all these other people you kind of feel some semblance of protection everyone knows she's already crazy so she wouldn't dare do anything extreme Yes. And so, well, he wants this divorce to be pushed through. He wants this to be over, but she won't accept any of the settlement offers because she wants a lot of money. I mean, she wanted something like a million dollars in 1988 money just in a, a lump sum and then $25,000 every month forever, basically, even if she got remarried or something, because she's saying I created half of his wealth. Now, she totally has a point. 
he wouldn't be able to have risen to where he was and also raised the kids. And she did put her sweat, tears, and support and everything into those early years while she supported him while he was getting two advanced degrees. But she's not helping herself by being difficult and firing her attorneys and everything that's happening going on. So finally, he shows up at this hearing that's supposed to determine their divorce, it sounds like, and she's not there. So he has his own high-powered attorney who says, look, she's not going to show up. So this is what we, we move or, you know, sorry, guys, I don't have the right legalese, but we submit that we should get a bifurcated divorce, which we've talked about in the past, which essentially grants somebody a legal divorce saying that the financial matters of the settlement are still pending. So they're legally done. They are no longer married. And everything, because Betty's not present, and she also doesn't have a representative present for her, just goes Dan's way. It's like, okay, she's not here. So granted, you have a bifurcated divorce. That's what you get. The money will be handled later, which is not great for Betty, that she doesn't know when she's going to have a real court-ordered payment where she doesn't have to beg or get essentially docked money for leaving these messages because he can just decide at whim how much he wants to give her at this point without a court order. And they also gave official custody, physical custody to Dan of the children. She was not actually getting legal visitation. She still had to ask for his permission to see the kids. None of this is what she wanted. This is lose, lose, lose for Betty. So now he gets what he wants. He's divorced. He doesn't have to legally give her anything. And he also doesn't have to legally let her see the kids. So he's got all the power in this situation. Everything. So this just becomes very, very bad. Very War of the Roses. She doesn't stop with the answering machine messages. She doesn't stop with the harassment. It gets to a point where there is something that will come to be known as the Danny call. He's now tape recording the conversations she's having with her children. Yeah, I do not blame him for that. No, and it's horrifying. It is so horrifying. There's this phone call that was made famous because it's played at trial later on where she's talking to her child, who I think was 10 or 11 at the time, and he's crying and he's saying, Mom, just stop saying bad words. Stop calling and speaking this way. If you stop saying bad words, Daddy will let me see you. Or I could come live with you. Why can't you just get over it? Why can't you just, because I want, I love you. And he's crying and he's begging her. He's saying, I want to come live with you. And she's saying, no, I'm not going to, what? And you're going to come here. It's not a house that's fit for you. I'm not ready for you. I can't do it without daddy giving me money. And he's like, you just want money. Like, I just want to be with you. And it even gets to this point where he's saying to her essentially, like, we can live in like the big room. Like, me and Rhett want to come live with you. And she's like, no, I can't. And so he's just like, you just want money. All you want is money and you don't want me. And it's just like this whole horrifying thing. And she is getting like angry and kind of mocking. And she is just tearing down his father. And she keeps calling Linda the C word and talking about them and what they're doing. And he's like, I don't care. He's a kid. He's like, I don't care what they're doing. I don't care who daddy goes out with. If it wasn't Linda, it'd be some other girl. And I wouldn't care because you're divorced. And she says, daddy might be divorced, but I'm not. 
It's like, oh, it's not how it works just because you didn't show up. Yeah. Just because you put your fingers in your ears and go, na, 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 doesn't mean it's not happening. And he's like really, really mad. And she's like, where's daddy? Well, you're yelling at me like this. And he's like, I don't know. And she goes, he's probably listening on the other phone. And he's like, no, he isn't. And then she's like, where's the C word? And he goes, I don't know, mom. I don't know. And she's like, well, it's not time to come over and screw him yet, huh? And she's like, no, she's with her family. And he's like, I wonder what her family thinks of her fucking her boss who's married with four kids. And he's like, not anymore. Like, he's just trying to get through to her. And he says, you can say whatever you want, but you're being a real jerk to all your family. Nobody's going to like you anymore. And she's like, well, I didn't do any of this, Danny. I was the best mother and the best wife in the whole world. Daddy fucked all of us. He fucked your whole life up and he fucked my whole life up. And he's like, well, you're doing the same thing right now, mom. Like this poor kid. She says, saying bad words has nothing to do with effing your whole family. And he's like, you're making it 10 times worse and it's just going to get worse and worse until you stop saying those bad words. Why won't you stop? And she said, because I hate daddy. He has robbed me of everything I have on earth, including the kids. And he goes, yeah, but you didn't, he didn't rob you. You gave him us. And she said, he's handled this like a fucking slug, throwing me in jail and stealing my house out from underneath me. Oh, she also, by the way, she did have to spend two different stints, multi-day stints in jail because she refused to stop leaving these messages. Oh my gosh. So she's now been in a mental hospital. Now she spent, like, I think it was one day, it was like three days. There was another day that she spent a five-day stint in jail, but she won't stop. Her son says, oh, yeah, do you know why he threw you in jail? Because you came and rammed through the house. Like, that was a different matter. But to the kids, that's like you did, did that. They saw that happen. And she said, after he stole my house from me, I wish he'd just die. I wish he would just get drunk and drive his fucking car. What's going to make the difference, Mom? She goes, because then he'll be gone off of Earth. He's like, you've been mad long enough. And she goes, no, I haven't. It's just, it's really heart-wrenching. It goes on and on and on. The kids were very deeply suffering. I guess that... The younger boys were sick all the time. Later, a teacher comes forward in Betty's defense saying that Dan was not doing a good job taking care of the kids because the younger two sons were constantly ill. They had head lice. Stuff was happening. She didn't know if they were being properly cared for. Lee, the second oldest child, developed a substance abuse problem. I think at some point for a short while of time, she dropped out of school. Dan was then angry with her. He cut her out of the will. He kicked her out for using drugs. So then she like had to go live with Betty for a little while. I mean, these kids were not doing well and no one was able to help them because both of their parents were way more committed to ruining each other's lives than helping their own children. And Kim, the eldest, invited obviously both of her parents to her high school graduation. And when Betty saw that Linda was there. She completely flipped out. She started following her around and taking pictures of her and flipped out on Kim, like was taking it out on a teenager that their father's girlfriend was there. Like Kim had something to do with it. Like Kim should have said, you're not allowed to come. And that Kim hadn't put her foot down. So it was Kim's fault. Kim was responsible for Betty acting that way at her child's graduation. To the point that later on, I guess, Kim, after graduation, moved into her own apartment and she was excited to show it to her mother. So a couple weeks after the graduation, she cleaned her whole place. She made lunch. She was expecting her mom and her mom called her when she was due and said, I'm not coming. I just remembered I hate you to her child because her child allowed her father's girlfriend to come to her graduation. So this is going very, very bad. And at this point, she did have a female attorney who was working very hard on the settlement. So they're already divorced, but they haven't worked out the details of the settlement. 
And Betty's fighting for that cash and she's saying, I know he's hiding it. Like, get in there, dig in there, find it out. But then now Dan is saying, I'm not going to pay for your attorney. They're like, it's going back and forth. But this one woman was very dedicated to helping Betty out. And she said, look, clean up your act and get the kids back because it's going to help you financially. And it's going to help you look better. It's going to help you seem like a good mother. If you do want custody of your kids, you need to have possession of them. So let's, number one, get your kids back. Let's focus on that. And then number two, we'll work on getting you the best settlement we possibly can. And she was just obsessed with finding out what Dan was doing and what Linda was doing. And she said she didn't want the kids back. She said, I'm not taking the kids back without a settlement because I am not going to be you know, him nickel and diming me and trying to struggle as a single mother. He'd love that. He'd love to watch me struggle and have a hard time and not treating them to the things that daddy gives them. So I'm not taking a single kid back until I have the money. The pride is overcoming the... Pride is overcoming. And these children are on this phone begging, saying they love her. I mean, it was getting to a point where her youngest son went on a field trip near where she lived and left, ran away from the field trip so he could go to his mother's house. Yeah. And Betty pissed off the school because she didn't even call. She hung out with him for five hours before calling school to tell them that he was okay. She eventually fired her female attorney. And the lawyer eventually did say that Betty was not considerate. Even when she was trying to work out visitation on Betty's behalf for Thanksgiving and Christmas after the divorce, Betty wasn't really interested because she just, she said, well, what, so I can look like I'm having a shitty Thanksgiving for them? She said later, Betty didn't care if she punished herself or her children as long as Dan didn't win. Yeah, that was the most important thing. I mean, it just seems like all of the love in Betty's heart had just been slowly bled out by the hormonal ups and downs, the perceived slights, the affair, the gaslighting. Everything chipped away until... All that was left was this like burning, gaping, cavernous hole of anger that would never be satisfied. Let's just say that things uh, don't improve when Dan proposes to Linda on her 27th birthday in 1988. Wow. So six years later. Yes. This is how long this has been going on. Five years since Betty really started to think that they were having an affair. And I guess it made the papers. He did it very publicly. He went down on one knee in a bar that they were known to hang out with, that everybody was around them. All the people that Betty used to hang out with when she was married to him are all there clapping. And then somebody did clip it out and send it to Betty, the clipping with the words, eat your heart out, bitch. And of course, Betty believed that it was Linda. Now, we don't have evidence that it was Linda. There was a couple other things that Betty claimed that Linda had done to antagonize her. She claimed somebody was sending her advertisements for wrinkle cream and like weight loss drugs. So fucked up. It's really fucked up. So she said that Linda was doing that to her too. Now, we have never found any evidence that that is the case. There was a friend of Linda's who came forward to say that once Linda did ask her to send something, but it wasn't even really clear if it was to Betty. And... Linda did send a lot of stuff to Betty because she was still Dan's paralegal. So all of this divorce type stuff. And I mean, to a point where there had to be like a court order to say that Linda can't put her name. I'd say that's a conflict of interest. Yes. And eventually, before the divorce was finalized, the judge was like, get the girlfriend off the answering machine. How about that? Like, I'm going to send Betty to jail because she keeps doing this. But like, how about you stop antagonizing her, yeah. you dick? yeah. You've already got enough working in your corner, sir. You don't need to be doing this. 
And I think that Linda was not perfect as well. There's reports from the children that Linda and Dan called Betty horrible names in front of the children. They called her the Beast and some other unflattering nicknames. And I can understand a little bit from Linda's perspective that this woman is terrorizing them and the children and calling her all these sorts of names and stuff. But the final straw for Linda, and this is one thing we do know she did, was when Betty broke into their house and stole their wedding invitation list. So she knew exactly everyone who's coming to their wedding and was calling them up. And I guess there was only one copy. And so one day while Betty was out and her door was unlocked because she was expecting her cleaning person to come in, Linda broke into Betty's house. She said she didn't break in because it was unlocked. the door was unlocked. But she went into Betty's house to look for this list. Now, she doesn't find the list, but she finds this, like, manifesto journal diary where Betty's been writing all of these threats and recording everything that they're doing to her. And it's just this, like, insane and kind of dangerous. Like, she's just going to kill them. Like, they're, like, it's, like, concerning to Linda. So she's like, I'm going to take this for evidence while I'm here, even though I didn't find it. So she goes back to her house and later says, oh, my gosh, so I went to go get a wedding list. I, he's like, you broke into Betty's house? Are you insane? Like, he's like, legally, like, this is so insane. You work for a law office. What are you thinking? How do you think she's going to perceive this? And she's like, well, this journal has, like, a bunch of dangerous stuff in it. Like, you need to read it. And he's like, I don't give a fuck about the journal. You get your ass back to her house and you put it back in there before she finds out it's gone. But when Linda was leaving, the cleaning person had come in. And she had said, oh, I'm a friend of Betty's or something and left. But when she described who it was, because Betty immediately knew her journal was missing, she knew it was Linda. So now Betty is appropriately aggrieved again because this is such an invasion. They have had an affair. They have screwed her out of the money. They've screwed her out of, like, the kids. And now they're breaking into her house and stealing her innermost thoughts? It's, like, beyond invasive. <laughs> it's sickening. It's violating. Would it almost cause you to murder someone? <laughs> Maybe it would. So now Dan is like, this is insane. This is getting completely out of hand. And he's like, we're getting this done before, before I get married. Before I get married, we're like settling this. I need to be done with Betty. It needs to be over. And Betty represents herself, which is always not great. Always a spectacularly horrible idea. Absolutely. She represents herself, and it doesn't go well, obviously. She gets a lot less than she hoped for, but still, it's a lot of money. Now, what she can't understand later on is how people don't understand that to her, it's, it's almost not about the money. It's about this whole thing. And now this is ending. Now, if this is it, then she is officially, like, there's nothing left for her to fight with Dan about. So she ended up getting $28,000. Not the five hundred thousand to one million dollar one time settlement that she wanted. I guess that the one time settlement was going to be more like one hundred and seventy five thousand or something, but they were detracting a bunch of like her legal fees, and he charged her for like the time spent in the mental hospital and like other things charges she incurred. Obviously, like the repair to the door and like all of that stuff he was keeping track of and charging her and taking it out of her ultimate settlement. So she ends up with 28000 in a one-time lump sum. And then she also got $16,000 a month. That's a lot. Until she remarries. That's $40,000 a month in today's money. 
That is a lot of money. The only child she got physical custody for was Lee, the troubled daughter. And she was awarded $1,500 a month in child support just for Lee. And that's it. And she was so furious about this that she took it out on poor Lee. She went home and told her daughter, her only daughter, who was awarded, she was awarded custody of, that she wasn't worth $1,500 for all the trouble she put her through and that she was evicted. And poor Lee had to go back to Dan, she's a teenager, and say, mom kicked me out. I don't really know what you want me to do. And he's like, well, I don't trust you to have a key to our house because I think you'll give it to your mother and we can't have her getting in here, obviously. So you can sleep in the pool house, but the pool house did not have a toilet. So if no one was home, she had to go and pee outside. This is how Leah's living because of what her parents are putting her through at this point. Now it's over and this is great, except for Linda's really scared. She's saying she's got nothing left to lose. She's going to kill us. She's going to kill you or she's going to kill me. She's saying, please get a top-of-the-line security system. Let's get a guard dog. Let's get some Dobermans or Rottweilers or something out here. I want you to wear a bulletproof vest for the wedding. And he is laughing at her. He's like, babe, come on. Like, maybe we can get a little security or whatever, but, like, we don't need it because she's not going to kill me. I am the golden goose. She's going to get the modern-day equivalent of 40 grand a month from me forever. She's never going to remarry. She's going to get 40 grand and she gets nothing if he dies. Absolutely nothing. Probably a motivating factor in not having her have a bigger settlement. Yeah. But also that she tried to say that she deserved to be a beneficiary of his life insurance policy because if he dies, obviously those payments stop. It's like if she gets remarries, dies, or he dies, those payments stop. And the court was like, I don't think so. Mm -mm." They said that he would have to have a mandatory amount, like I think it was like a million dollars or something, that would be split four ways for the children. And he had to have that life insurance policy to make sure that the kids were taken care of. But beyond that, he didn't have to have anything that would pay Betty. So he's saying, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. She's not going to kill me. She kills me. And there's no, no money. And I think that he thought it was about the money. Like a lot of people did. A lot of people did. I don't think he ever truly understood Betty or her motivations or how to speak to her or care about her because he, I think, still thought it was about the money because that's what she cares about the most. You know her. She's a greedy bitch. She wants the money. That was not what Betty wanted the most. So surprisingly, the wedding goes off without a hitch, which you could imagine. Can you imagine being at that wedding? Just, no, thank everyone's you. Everyone's just so nervous thinking Betty's going to show up at any point. Fucking Carrie vibes, like electrocute yes. everyone with their brain. Maleficent's coming in like, you should invite me to the party, bitches, you know? <laughs> Where's the cake? <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, like the Garth Brooks, I got friends in low places <laughs> when he shows up at the wedding. But yeah, she did not show up. And that was, I think, nothing short of a miracle because Dan and his infinite sensitivity had decided that his wedding date with his new wife was going to be a mere 10 days after his 20th wedding anniversary would have been with Betty. I mean, Linda also should have stepped in and been like, you know what? We can wait one more month. Let's just wait till May. Let's give Betty April because they were April 12th, 20 years prior. And now it is April 22nd was their 1989. Yep. By most accounts, if this was 
any other conversation, guys. This would be an Oprah episode of the world's most intense divorces or the who the fuck did I marry who did this to me or something without death. It should be the end of the story. They're divorced. They reached a settlement. Dan has remarried. He and Linda were trying for a baby. They told a friend they wanted to have five together. Five? Well, she he had four with his first wife. His parents had nine. So why not have room for five at this point? She's, what, only 27, 28? So Dan's new life was starting over. He was happy. Everyone says he was so happy. He was like a different man that even his kids said Linda made him happy. She laughed at his jokes. She seemed to get him. They spoke the same language. They understood each other. I think it can often be made out as this like tawdry thing, which indeed is started in infidelity. So this is not a good love story. We're not rooting for them. But maybe they were meant to be together. Betty obviously is not doing well. And as these months went by, she's also keeping a running list of how these humiliations and injustices are continuing to happen to her. She had to sell the house that she was living in because it was kind of falling apart. Like she couldn't get the repairs anyways. And it's this gigantic house that she doesn't have custody of her kids. Now, her attorney, she had a new attorney at this point who was saying, we're gonna get custody of your kids. We're gonna fight for it. We're gonna keep fighting for it. Don't give up the house because they'll be living with you. And she was like, nope. So she's moving into a condo that doesn't have a view of the ocean that looks out on like a dominoes at this point. And I think she's kind of doing it though to herself. She's saying, I'm gonna just live there. I think she was currently still in the house though at this point. But she's looking at her future and saying, this sucks. She was really insulted when Dan took Linda to the annual Notre Dame-USC game that fall, where they had met, where he was seeing all of his friends who he went to school with and all of the wives that she had been there for year after year because they made it an annual trip to go back because it was where they fell in love and he's taking Linda there. Yeah. I mean, then it gets like even worse. He tells her that even though it's not her weekend, she can take the two youngest boys trick-or-treating. They're getting older. They're not going to want to trick-or-treat anymore. It's special to her. The last minute, no, we decided I'm going to take them. You can't come. So it's still happening to her. So on Saturday, November 4th, 1989, Betty got her sons for the weekend, but it did nothing to calm her spirit. This was not a balm at this point. She was three days away from turning 42. And what did she have to show for it is what she's thinking. Nothing. In six years, Dan Broderick and Linda Kolkenna had stripped every single thing from her. Her pride, her kids, her looks, her happiness, her dignity, her reputation. Everything is gone. She spent 16 years building that man up and it took him six years to take it all away. So that evening, she lay awake into the early morning hours. And it's just a really sad vision, too, because her youngest rat loved her so much that he was sleeping next to her. He had crept into her bed to fall asleep next to her because he loved his mom. And while this innocent little kid is just sleeping, snoozing next to her, she her mind's spinning. She later said of her emotions, because she gets up and she leaves the house at some point. I think we all know where this is going. What she says later about what she was thinking was that she said, quote, I was just so tired of being the defenseless, helpless victim of these two maniacs. What the fuck do they want from me? They want me to go away and never speak to my kids again? No, they will not live to see that. I will not live to see that. I mean, my heart starts racing. My blood pressure goes through the sky. This case was not about your husband marrying a younger girl, and it was not about money. It was about the kids. I was so depressed. 
I felt so completely helpless and it didn't help that I was turning 42 years old. I looked like shit. I felt like shit. My life was going down, 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 down. And they're still coming at me. I went crazy. I went absolutely crock'em. There's a scene in the Superman movie where he flies around the earth real fast and he screams this blood-curdling scream that the whole world, well, well, that's what I felt like. I felt like standing up in my kitchen and doing a primal scream so loud that the whole fucking world would wake up and go, what's that? It's Betty Broderick going over the edge. I mean, that would have been better, I think. <laughs> I mean, better if she'd done the four non-blondes. I said, hey, what's going on? <laughs> she can take it up that to an 11. It's fine. Yeah. So Betty would later say that she just had to get out of the house. She had to clear her mind. She leaves the house. But somehow, somehow, she says, she found her way to Dan's house. Somehow she had a gun in her hand. And so as dawn broke, I think it was around six in the morning, Betty let herself into the house because Betty had somehow gotten her hands on Dan's house key. Now we know where it came from. Came from her daughter, Kim. And... Betty would later say that she found the key at her house, that Kim must have somehow lost it when I think we can all agree that she stole it from her daughter. Obviously. So somehow she has this key that she just found and she's just somehow at his house with somehow having a gun. She's in a stupefied, crazy state, she says. So she doesn't know. She doesn't remember how she got there. She doesn't remember how she left. She doesn't remember this. She's just in a state of mind. So she got into his house. She seemed to know exactly the layout of his new house because she went straight for their bedroom. And she said that even though it was dark, she does remember that she pushed open the door and she could see them sleeping there. And her story will change throughout the years, whether she wasn't there to kill them, whether she was there to kill herself and she just wanted them to have to witness it. Whatever reason, She will maintain she wasn't there to kill them. But then maybe she says at one point that Linda said something like, call the police. Like she realized Betty was standing there and said, call the police. And then she panicked and the gun went off. We don't know for sure because obviously Betty is the only witness to this. She's the only person left alive in this situation. We do know that she raised that gun and she shot them both dead. We know that Linda was hit first, directly in the chest. The second shot severed her brainstem, killing her instantly. Dan was shot in the back. It seemed like he had tried to get out of the bed and she had shot him in the back and he was not as lucky as his new wife, who, by the way, in their bathroom was an ovulation calendar because they were trying to get pregnant. And he, based on his saliva and the pool of blood, the medical examiner would later say that it took Dan probably maybe up to 30 minutes to die. Oh my God, that's horrifying. What's even worse is that the medical examiner said that it was possible that if he had gotten immediate medical attention, he maybe would not have died at all. He would have survived. So what did she do? He's obviously trying to get to a phone. She walked in his room and she pulled the phone out of the wall and made sure that he couldn't get it. Later on, there would be evidence that she actually somehow severed the cord with her own two hands. That it wasn't like she pulled it out of the wall. Like the cord was ripped in half. So she left. She left the house after that. And she did not seem to have much of an exit plan. Now I'll tell you what I think she was doing. She ends up calling a girlfriend from a phone booth and she says, quote, I finally did it. I shot Dan. I could hear him gurgling in his own blood. And it's true. They do shit their pants. She left that voicemail? 
she said it to the woman and the woman was so disgusted, she hung up. She was like, this is a disgusting joke, Betty. And she hung up on her. She didn't believe it. She thought it was just another one of Betty's like unhinged speeches. But then she ended up calling another friend and then she eventually went to her daughter Lee's apartment because Lee had an apartment by this point. And together, she told Lee what happened. She, but she said that at that point, she didn't think that Dan was dead. She thought that Linda was probably dead, but she didn't even know if she hit Dan, she said to her daughter. And she thought that, that maybe he was going to call the police and she was scared he was going to call the police. And that's why she took the phone away because she didn't want to get in trouble. But together, they ended up calling a criminal defense attorney, and Betty turned herself in right away. Shockingly, despite her confession, because she did tell the police she had been in the home, that she hadn't meant to kill them, but she did kill them, she pleaded not guilty. While investigating her case, her defense attorney, Jack Early, did find some evidence that Dan may have been hiding assets and that she hadn't been crazy about that. But I think Betty had long since lost the moral high ground in this situation. Uh, Yeah, I'd say. She had killed two people in their bed, and she ended up becoming a celebrity for it. She went on a press tour. I mean, she was talking to everyone that would talk to her, and she was unrepentant. She told a Los Angeles Times reporter that she shot Dan and Linda in a desperate act of self-defense. She's in their bedroom using a stolen key. She said, quote, it always makes me mad when people call them the victims. Me and my kids were the victims. There are two dead people, but there are only five victims. Wow. Just no remorse. But Betty had fans. I mean, she got fan mail. It was like the first wives club, but with murder. Yeah. I mean, she just struck a chord with anyone who had ever been cheated on, abused, neglected, rejected, thrown away like trash. She received hundreds of letters of support of people saying, I know what you feel like. I know how you felt like you could do that. So Betty's trial began on October 23rd, 1990. The prosecutor told the story of a scorned woman hell-bent on revenge who, with premeditation, killed two people as they slept in their own bed. But the defense told a story of a psychologically battered woman who had been driven insane after years of being lied to, being made to feel crazy, having her whole persona, her life, her children taken away from her. And she had like a, a metaphor, the drip, the drip, drip, drip of all of these things just slowly happening or never stopping, just kind of this waterboard of emotional torture that drove Betty to her actions. Betty herself did get on the stand And she would say that she had the gun to get their attention, to make them, force them to see her pain, to kill herself, potentially, blow her brains out on their walls so they could really see what they had done to her. And her defense attorney stressed that she had zero financial motive to kill Dan. In fact, it kind of screwed her over. And also that she had immediately turned herself in. So if this was a plan, if this was premeditation, then why didn't she have a plan for getting away with it? Why did she just turn herself in? So clearly you cannot decide that this was premeditated in any way. And of course, Betty's not the only one on trial. Essentially, Dan Broderick is on trial in this because they are talking about every horrible thing that he ever did to her. So these poor kids are having to sit there. And then Kim is testifying on the prosecution side, and Lee is testifying on the defense's side. So the kids are being pulled in two different directions. 
Well, after four days of deliberation, the jury was completely deadlocked. Wow. Ten members of the jury voted for first-degree murder. I mean, she stole a key. She got in her car. She drove over there with a gun. She used the key. She climbed into somebody else's bedroom and she shot them dead while they slept. How is that not premeditated? But there was two people who said, absolutely not. We want manslaughter. And neither side would budge. And... They went to the judge and the judge said, you've only been deliberating for four days. Is this really it? This is it? You can't come to a conclusion? And one of the jurors, there was this guy, his name was Walter Pope. He said, we could deliberate for the whole rest of the year and I won't change my decision. He wanted manslaughter. Wow. He said to a journalist later that the only question he had about the whole thing was that given Dan's treatment of Betty being so ruthless and so relentless for so long, his only question was what took her so long. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Want to cross his path. Yeah. So Betty's second trial started just about a year later on October 15th, 1991. And this time it seemed the prosecutor had learned what went wrong in the first one, which was mostly when she cross-examined Betty. She didn't actually make Betty talk about firing the gun, shooting them. How did she get that gun? How did she get that key? How did she find in the bedroom? Because she had kind of let her obliquely talk about well, I don't really know what happened. And then the gun went off. And now she was like really drilling down on her, which made it very clear, obviously, that the gun didn't just go off in her hand five times. Because there was also two shots that missed that were found in the room too. So she had fired the gun five times. And I mean, especially the accuracy in which she hit Linda would suggest that she was certainly aiming. They also managed to successfully motion to limit an expert witness's testimony that essentially asserted that Betty was a victim of battered women's syndrome, that even though there wasn't a record of him actually physically beating her, this psychological torment was up there. And it was enough to say that she qualified for that sort of syndrome And then talk at length about what this does to somebody's psyche, especially being cheated on and being lied to for so long until you're not just disgusted with the other person by the time you find it out. You're disgusted with yourself and you question all of your choices at that point. And they managed to really, like, this guy I think still got to testify, but he was absolutely pissed off too because they wouldn't let him say almost anything that he had said in the first trial. So they were able to really mitigate a lot of the factors that had gone into that jury being deadlocked and a couple people being very much on Betty's side. She dialed down on how Betty had that key. How did she get the key? How did she know the floor plan of the house? Why did she have the gun? Why the gun if she wasn't going to hurt them? And she said, well, I was going to kill myself. She's like, well, then why didn't you kill yourself? Why are they dead and you're alive? How did that happen? Why did you rip the phone card in half? Why did you rip it out of the wall? If you weren't, you're not cognizant, you don't know what's going on, you're just in this fugue state, then why are you doing all this stuff to get away with it? When she really like drilled down into it, all of a sudden there's a a different picture emerging for this jury. The prosecutor played the horrible Danny tape so the jury could listen to Betty rage at a crying child. And the defense tried to get in testimony from a man who came forward after the first trial to say that he recognized the pictures of Dan Broderick from when there was a, I think, a court TV something. And he said that he had at one point sat next to Dan Broderick at a casino and Dan had been talking to this other guy. Somehow they got on the subject of how Dan's 
wife or soon-to-be ex-wife was driving him crazy and how he thought that he might drive her so crazy she might actually kill herself. And this other guy's like, well, why don't you just like find somebody, pay somebody to do the job? And the two of them were like talking about a hitman or something. And so the defense tried to get that man's testimony in, but the judge ruled very correctly, I think, that Betty didn't know that happened. Betty wasn't even aware because he had like kind of made it a surprise at the trial. She was like, no, I didn't know he was trying to kill me. And he was trying to like get it in to testimony. And the judge was like, well, if she didn't know about it, then it can't factor in her to her decision or motivation to kill him. So therefore, it doesn't belong in the trial. Meaning if she was aware that like some that guy had found her and called her and said, just so you know, I was at this casino and he was trying to kill you. She'd be like, oh, my gosh, maybe I have to kill him before he kills me. But that's not the case. But that's not the case. The judge is like, this is immaterial. So no. The defense had a much harder time this go around, let's just say. So again, goes the jury. They debate for days. Again, this is a long, long deliberation. And there was another holdout who was on Betty's side and was trying to hold out for manslaughter. And she was acquitted of first-degree murder, but she was convicted of second-degree murder. Wow. So the one holdout for manslaughter eventually compromised with the rest of the jurors because she didn't think that Betty would have to stay in prison long if she got second-degree murder. She thought maybe she'd get six to ten years or something. That wasn't the case. Yeah. The sympathetic juror would later say that the single most damaging piece of evidence against Betty had, in fact, been the Danny tape. Yeah. She said that at that point prior to the tape being played, Many of the jurors were 50-50 or they were on the fence. And then after that, several of the jurors said that they would, they were not on Betty's side anymore. Betty was sentenced to the maximum sentence of two 15-year-to-life terms to run consecutively, not concurrently. With credit for time served, Betty would be eligible for parole at the earliest in 19 years. So as far as What I think happened, I think Betty intended to kill them both and then kill herself. I really do. Because she did not have an exit strategy. And she was too smart of a woman, I think, to not plan any way in which to get around it. She just seemed stunned she had done it. And there was a couple different phrases when she's being questioned by the police or cross-examined where she says a couple things that rang hysterically true to me, which is one was that she was saying... I went over there so they could see that my blood would be on their walls. And it seemed to ring true. And later when she was being cross-examined, she said that she ran out of bullets. And I kind of think that she got in there, she starts shooting, and it's all adrenaline taking over. And she did not leave a bullet for herself. Or she couldn't do it. Maybe she couldn't kill herself at the end. She couldn't do it. You know, people can kill other people, but they have self-preservation. Either way, she ran out of bullets or she couldn't do it because I think that she wanted till death do us part with Dan. She made a promise. He made a promise. She wasn't going to let him go living his life when hers was effectively done. But she also wasn't going to be able to live in any sort of wealth or the way she liked to live now because if she kills him, there's no money. So I don't think she really intended to live. I think she definitely wanted Linda gone. She definitely wanted Dan gone. She wanted to punish them and make sure they didn't continue living after her. But I don't necessarily know if Betty wanted to go on living herself. Yeah. Or at least hadn't planned to. Well, she is still behind bars. 
She has been incarcerated ever since she turned herself in that day in November in 1989. She has been up for parole three times since she was eligible, first in January of 2010, then in November of 2011, and most recently in January of 2017. Betty has been denied parole every single time because she continues to show no remorse for what she has done, nor acknowledge any wrongdoing. Speaking to author Bella Stumbo from prison, this is, I think, years after the murder, she was still still bad-mouthing her victims to a reporter and author that she knows is writing about this case. She closes her book this way because it's just so mind-boggling. She said, what did the cunt do with her china? She's like talking about, she was also obsessed with her wedding china because Linda wouldn't give it back to her. She had it, something. She goes, I want to know where it is, she said over the phone. Which one of her bimbo girlfriends is eating off my wedding china? I hope they get botulism and die. You find out where that wedding china is because I want to know. I've always wanted to know. It was just to hurt me. I want to know who's got it. I want it back. It's got bad karma on it. They're going to die. Really, they are. They're going to choke on a chip and die. She always prays at night too, she says. Me and God are old friends. He guided those bullets that night. He did. Do you seriously think I could have ever killed Dan Broderick by myself without his help? As usual, she didn't mention Linda. Then she giggled. You know, I still can't believe it that just one little bullet could kill Dan Broderick. It's crazy. And I think that when this case first happened, people saw Betty as the villain. But I feel like the Dirty John show was kind of sympathetic to her. And the showrunners even said that they felt like Betty had been victimized greatly. And I'm not denying it at all. But when you look at the things she said how she treated her kids, what happened, it's very hard to cast her in any light. We've talked about many murderers who were abused, who were treated horribly, that were driven to horrible acts. And it's her responsibility to manage her own mental health and to not do it. Women are cheated on, abused, lied to, gaslit every single day. Yeah. And that doesn't give you the right to kill two people while they sleep. And it wasn't that little bullet that killed him. It was you shooting the gun with the bullet in it. I don't think God was guiding your hand there. So Betty and Dan's children are all grown up. They have families of their own. The four siblings have remained extremely close and love each other very much. As for their opinion about whether their mother should ever be released from prison, well, on that, the siblings agree to disagree, which is really amazing that they haven't let this affect their relationship. Yes, I agree. So as of one of Betty's parole hearings, two of her children spoke against her release. That is, her eldest daughter, Kim, and eldest son, Danny, said that she should not get out. And two of her children, her youngest girl and youngest boy, Lee and Rhett, have spoken in favor of her release, with Lee even saying that she has a room in her home for Betty to move into. Rhett said to Oprah about Betty's potential release, Quote, keeping her in prison isn't really helping her. She's not a danger to society. The only two people she was ever a danger to are dead. Yeah. I mean, it's put very simply, but it's true. Yeah. But without being sorry for what she's done. She's not going to get out if she doesn't. Yeah. She's not truly rehabilitated. Yeah. Betty will have her next shot at parole in January of 2032 when she is 84 years old. Wow. 
Longest episode ever. <laughs> Thank you for hanging in there with me, Andy. You're welcome. My stomach is like, rawr. <laughs> and thank you to all of you listeners. I hope you stopped at appropriate intervals and took breaks. We did not. We ran straight through. We did not. Oh, we did not. Poor Andy. She did not come up with the format for this podcast. I was like, <laughs> we're never going to make people wait for a part two. We're just going to do really, really long episodes. And she's like, great. Super. At least it's not like when I was pregnant and I had to pee five times. I only peed once this time. (laughs) In conclusion, if you ever find yourself in a horrible situation similar to Betty's, I want you to really think, what would Betty do? And then do the opposite. And on that note, maybe it's always good to make some space for forgiveness. And in the end, even though you are forgiving something else or someone else, it's probably the best for you. I think absolutely. I think nobody's entitled to your forgiveness. You don't have to forgive them, obviously. But I think when you forgive, it's usually more for you than the person who's wronged you. Yeah, you can forgive and never forget, just like Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears' denim outfit. (laughs) You can forgive in your heart and just not even tell them you forgave them. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one goes to an awards show wearing double denim. Bye. Bye, guys. (laughs) 